Live as it happened from the We Talk Games production studios in Trapdoor Mansion, located in scenic downtown Samiesville, it's the We Talk Games Video Power Magazine. Tonight, our special guest will be the president of Intellivision Productions Incorporated, Keith Robinson. Plus, the We Talk Games Council of Video Game Millionaires tackles second-gen gaming. I'm Stinky the Game Master, along with Kyle Von Kubik, Johnny Capcom, T.T. Schmookins, and here's your host, Wiggly! Welcome to We Talk Games. This is our 70th release of We Talk Games since our inception in 2006. I'm your host, Wiggly, in the booth, Keith LaPosh. Yo. I think your talkback channel might be bleeding a little bit into the effects channel. We Talk Games, the only video game podcast that is 100% games, zero filler. Sitting to my right, Keith. <laughs> Is that a duck? Stinky, what are you doing? I'm just, I'm just really trying to savor all my coffee here because, I listen, I go down there, I make a coffee in your coffee maker, right? It says eight cups. I think, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll have two or three cups, but I'll make the whole pot. Eight. I don't even get three cups out of it. I hear you. Eight. I t- so I took one of these here measuring cups. One cup I put in there. Water. I poured it into that thing, and where does it come up on the line? Two and three quarters cups. How is that a cup? So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll go get myself my own electric percolator. Eh, maybe one of these silver ones, or maybe one of these ones from Corningware. Doesn't matter to me. I look at it at the store for a six cup. It's almost seventy dollars, and an eight cup is over a hundred. For an electric percolator, it's basically a tea kettle with a plug in it. Holy crap! And they say it's eight cup, but it's probably only like two cup. That's how they get you. They keep changing the size of what a cup is. That's probably because all those goofs that are willing to pay two to three hundred dollars for all these crumps and senseos and gadeos and well, anyway, that's what I think. Well, think in one hand and wish in the other and see which one poops first. That's what they always say. I don't think anyone says that. Uh, that's what they always say. So now, sitting to my right, T.T. Schmootkins. Hello, I am T.T. Schmootkins, the talking glamour gal computer. All the calculators want to see me. And all the toasters want to be me. Now, how'd that deed go with uh, Watson there? Oh, yeah, that? Well, Watson actually turned out to be AC. AC. I see. Ha ha ha! Serves you right! Why go too far from the table if the barn has a cow that has lots of milk around it? It's always the computers with the massive hard drives. Hey Work-friendly, T.T. Well, I'm off to see if I can sell some of my parts to a percolator store. All right, all right. 
Hey, we have a great show lined up for you. It's always fantastic to talk to someone that's been in the video game business for over 30 years. Keith Robinson was brought into Intellivision as a programmer. He's also an artist, dabbled in special effects for movies, and a hell of a cool fellow. And he'll be up momentarily to talk about the Intellivision and all the things that he's involved with now. Johnny Capcom will be on to tell us about what he's been playing lately. And one of them is even a new game. Plus, the We Talk Games Council of Video Game Millionaires will take on second-generation gaming. And how would you like a free Nintendo 3DS? Well, stick around and I'll tell you about the Noel Lino Contest. But first, let's get Kyle Von Kubik on the horn find out what he's been playing lately. Open it up, Keith! Metamucil, go! Kyle Von Kubik. We talk games, 100% games, zero filler. Let's get started. Let's talk about our favorite breakfast cereal. Wheaties, go. Hey. Yeah. Stinky. Yeah. Speaking about those, I go in the Wawa and get a coffee. Now, they have two choices for lids. What? Why do I need to make a decision if I want a flip-top lid or I want one with just a sippy hole? It's just silly. It's it's nonsense. Yeah. Do you know some people don't like coffee? I don't like coffee. No, I don't like coffee either. <laughs> hey, man, let's talk some games. Oh, right, right. What have you been playing lately? Uh, not much, because <laughs> yeah. uh, my life is a blur. Aha! Uh-huh. I understand But one this. game I got to sink uh, my teeth into from start to end. Yeah. Stacking. I played this myself. This is a free game to anyone that is a member of the PlayStation Plus network, and it will disappear when you are no longer a member of the PlayStation right. Plus network. Yes. Well, and that's actually what sold me on becoming a PlayStation Plus member. Two things, actually. Okay. Uh, one was, dialing it back a few months, Costume Quest had come out. Right. It was $15, and I heard a lot of great things about Costume Quest, and I was like, so this is like a Tim Schafer joint, and I'm a big fan of Tim Schafer because of all the adventure games, you know, Grim Fandango and Psychonauts and things like this that he's been involved with. So I'm like, this is going to be good. And the whole premise of Costume Quest was a bunch of uh, the team had split up into smaller teams. Teams, and we're going to come up with these really like kitschy type of games and they'd be released as downloadable content. So when Costume Quest came out, I was like, all right, this is cool. So I threw down my $15 and not that I was disappointed, but I just didn't get into it as much. Mm-hmm. The game was cute. I literally spent like maybe 10, 15 minutes in the game and I, I just, it didn't hook me in. So when I saw stacking, same thing, I heard people saying all these great things about stacking. But then I also saw the dramatic cut in Costume Quest that followed with stacking being released and Sam and Max, a game that I talked at length about, <laughs> yeah. becoming free. Completely free, the entire novelette game. Yeah, so I'm like, what am I doing? Like, I love adventure games, but I'm throwing down all this money. I've been tossing and turning whether or not I'm going to do the, the PlayStation Plus. Mm-hmm. And here's a game I want to play. It's free if I join. Of course, it's not really free because you're throwing down $50, but th- you get a couple minis for free, and there's some discounts, and I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. So I did it. I'm kind of happy I did. I got to play some of those minis that otherwise I would just ignore, and mm-hmm. I got stacking for free. And man, is it a great game. Yeah, well, first let's back up. Number one, are you at the seashore? No, I'm not. Oh, okay, very good. I just hear the ocean waves. Number two, did you get to the boss battles in Costume Quest? Yes, I did. Oh, okay. Um, And how did I do that? Yeah. Because after completing stacking, 
my fiance and I were playing stacking together and we really dug it. Yeah. And then she's like, well, you know, I, it, I'm sad that this game is over. I'm like, well, you know, a, a similar team, really the same team made this game Costume Quest and I kind of put it on the back burner as a game that oh, I'll eventually get back to. But I didn't because I knew I wasn't going to. And she's like, well, let's try it out. Mm-hmm. And we did. And all of a sudden now I'm hooked into that game a little more. Okay. And that Costume Quest, a little more repetitive. I thought stacking was a better game of the two. Stacking sold me on going back to Costume Quest and giving it another try, and I'm happy I did. Now, when you first told me about stacking, I thought this was a game where it's like you see some stacking dolls on the screen, and it's like color forms, and then you put dolls inside of each other, and then it clears blocks. But that's not what it's like at all. (laughs) No, it's not like Hattress. Um, (laughs) It's more like an adventure game with Russian nesting dolls. But one of the biggest mechanics in the game is actually jumping in other dolls. And each doll, with the exception of the main character, has their own ability. And some of them are just goofy and fun and others are not apparent to their usefulness until you start playing the game it's definitely got a lot of unique puzzles to each board it's really interesting it's really cool it's got that i always use this example kid chameleon but there's lots of games where you know you put on different hats and get different abilities right but what's cool about this one is it seems so intuitive but the thing i wasn't expecting was that it was 3d it was it's set in a complete 3d environment yes with a movable camera initially you're going down through a type of subway system. Correct. Uh, which reminded me a lot of all those <laughs> scary subway system horror games that you play, except that now you're funny, friendly stacking dolls. But you run into bums and things like this, too. And, yes, and hobos, you, as they're called. In game. The whole setting of the, the game is this, um, this sort of nesting doll living in a diorama of the Gilded Age of America. If that makes any sense, exactly, and it's and it but that's really, what it is, and it goes through like a history of a, another America, perhaps, or even drawing on some real historic types of environments from American history. And what you can do is you can jump into a doll that's larger than you, and then you take on their persona. Correct, and that's the big uh, gimmick with the game is you can't be tiny and jump into the biggest doll. You have to build your way up. You mentioned about each doll has its own type of abilities, but you're actually playing as that doll. Like one of the dolls screams and that draws attention, and then you jump out of that doll, and another doll is like a hoochie-coochie girl that distracts people, and they follow that doll somewhere else, and then you sneak around and do these other things. Right. There's, um, I believe there's four or five worlds you go into, each with a different setting. There's um, a Zeppelin. There's, of course, the train station. There's a cruise ship. And then there's actually a train that you're on later on in the game. One of the coolest things that I found in the game, which I wish they would have done earlier, was some of the puzzles that needed two dolls. So like you said, one doll would scream and get attention. You jump out, and while people were distracted, you go and you know get past the guard or something. Mm-hmm for example. But later on in the game, there was a doll who had a cooling mechanism and then another doll that would squirt water. What you'd have to do is jump into the cooling mechanism doll, then jump into the water squirting doll, and you'd actually have to freeze other characters in the game mm. to move on with the quest. So you'd squirt them real quick with water, jump out and cool them, and then you know jump back in and keep moving. I see. And uh, I really liked that. I was like, wow, that was cool, but it was... 
pretty much the swan song of the game. And what was really great about the game was it never felt repetitive. When the game ended, I was like, man, this game actually could have went a little longer, Mm -hmm. which I guess is the best thing to say about the game was that I was kind of sad when it was over. But I definitely feel like at the price point that it's at, it's a great value as a freebie on PlayStation Plus. Hey, it got me. You know, it is 3D. It is a downloadable game, but it doesn't look cheap. It doesn't look budget. It looks good because of the art style. Right, right. So I definitely recommend stacking. If you were a fan of Costume Quest, they're not the same game because it's not like you're you're battling monsters in like an RPG sort of way. But I think you'll still enjoy stacking. And if you like stacking and you kind of didn't dig Costume Quest, I definitely recommend going back and trying it. Because there's definitely the same uh, labor of love evident between the two games. Again, I'm glad that one turned me on to the other. Gotcha. Uh, A little bird told me, a little tweet bird told me that you are now a proud owner of an iPad. Yes, in fact, I am a proud owner of an iPad 1. Very good. Somebody threw it out. They threw it it in the street, yeah. (laughs) Uh, No, of course, I upgraded to the iPad 2, and I sold you my old iPad 1. This is part of my ongoing keep my credit alive at the Mac store. And uh, I got the iPad You solely did it for economic reasons, not because you actually wanted it. No, what sold me on the iPad 2 was when I saw GarageBand, because now I honestly believe I can write music while I'm out and use it as my amplifier, because I don't have amplifiers fires anymore. Uh, I, I don't have stomp boxes, and, and I only have a guitar amp, so this will really aid me in uh, being able to perform live as well. So that was what sold me, because, you know, two cameras, uh, I know that would be a novelty for me. Who am I going to really look at when I do the cameras? Um, you can call your friends while you're on the toilet. Well, I do that with Chiz, but that's about it. Oh. So, But, I mean, you know, that is not enough reason for me to get the iPad 2. The dual processors, uh, maybe at some point that will be uh, a factor, but right now it wasn't, you know, uh, necessarily. But what, what really was was the fact that GarageBand can run on it. So let's talk a little bit. About so now I'm a proud owner of an iPad One. Yep. Because you had it, it's in great condition. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't come with any of the awesome games that you had loaded up <laughs> no. as I was playing on the uh, trip to Atumwa. So I have to way. now go into the App Store and figure out what's good. Yeah. And the problem that I'm finding with that is there's a lot that's not good. Mm-hmm. Big recommendation on my part, definitely listen to We Talk Games with those uh, portable or paddable gaming episodes Yeah, because there is just a sea of turds yes. in the App Store. Very shockingly, let's talk about one of those turds, the Castlevania game that I picked up. Uh, great reviews. Everyone was really stoked about this Castlevania game on uh, the App Store. And then I started playing it and it's some like janky puzzle game that's kind of like uh, I guess Bejeweled it's or col- uh, yeah, Columns. Col- yeah, it's like Columns. And uh, it's Castlevania Puzzle <laughs> and it's it's not actually an iPad game. It's actually an iPhone or iPod Touch game. Yeah. So you, you got the expansion and it doesn't look very good. Yeah, you gotta get used to that. It's a Columns game and you work your way through the castle. They they tried to tie it into Castlevania as much as they could. It has good music. It has uh, good uh, enemies. But you're just Columns seen against them. Right. It just seems really forced. 
just yeah and uh, you I'm, know there's there's really no magic that you do it uh, it happens all automatically you're mostly just paying attention to yourself you're not even looking at your demon opponent so uh, yeah it, it is a little force like you say and it is an iPod game so you really have to watch for to make sure you're looking at the top half of mm-hmm. the iTunes store to make sure you're getting only iPad apps I mean to be honest when I saw you know Castlevania puzzle game people raving about it I was thinking something along the lines of like Henry Hatsworth or something like that mm-hmm. so I was like oh, okay this is going to be cool but it's not it's not even a good puzzle game right so yeah. uh, I would stay far away from that it but, would have been okay you know back in the 16-bit era maybe no it would have been yeah I wouldn't have liked it <laughs> okay but Choo Choo Rocket on the other hand oh my how can it's I an awesome about that? game yeah Choo Choo Rocket, which is for the iPad, is uh, my favorite port since the uh, Dreamcast. It's it's the same as the Dreamcast version. The Dreamcast version I remember getting free with my uh, with the modem. I think it came free with the browser actually, but I don't know how long that lasted. But that's where I got it free, and it's the same game. You you set up how you want your little mice to go to try to get into their uh, escape rocket ships and uh, avoid cats. You hope, and then once you set up all your directional arrows you tell them to hit the bricks and they start running and you hope that you escape yeah and what's really nice is that the swipe controls again talking about force don't feel forced right. in the game yeah they, they actually add to it and i actually believe it or not enjoy playing it on the ipad more than i did playing it on the console and just, you know you just have it sitting in your lap you got you can like it's this overhead view as you're looking down at it and it just it seems to work like if i didn't know choo choo rocket was a dreamcast game i'd be like wow this is like one of the best <laughs> app games out there you know obviously it's a port but it works yeah it was a fun game then it's a fun game now i definitely recommend it much like the final fantasy crystal defenders uh work yeah, better uh, with the touch controls crystal defender game like i said on previous episode that actually made me buy a lesser version of that game because it was just so good on the iPad that I'm like, I got to keep playing this game. And I ended up buying it on the PlayStation 3. It was fun, but it wasn't the same. It was definitely a better experience on the iPad. Well, let me tell you about something I normally don't talk about, and that is a new title. Hit me. It's getting a lot of play in the Apple Store, and for good reason, I believe. And I think that this is a game that you're going to like. It's five bucks right now, uh, but let's hope that they they may drop that. It's definitely worth five dollars. Super Brothers Sword and Sorcery. Now, is this some sort of like Mario Brothers bootleg knockoff? No, this is so Super Brothers is a development team. Okay. And they created this game called Sword and Sorcery. It's an adventure title, as the name implies. It's an elaborate point-and-click-and-fight adventure version of Jason Rohr's Passage to me. Okay. It reminds me a lot of the sensation I experienced playing out of this world for the first time. Were you around in that time in gaming? Oh, yeah. Okay. So when you first played out of this world it truly blew your mind it's like yeah because you were like this looks so real (laughs) i know we use that a lot but that it really did look amazing you know it was simple block graphics but the animation was so smooth it was a compelling story basic controls that never made you feel like you weren't a part of the game fantastic aural environment smooth animation of the basic character and background shapes that can't tell you how many that times that slug stabbed me in the foot oh how about it and it it was scary but Oh yeah, but the graphics left 
just enough to your imagination to fill it in so it leads to a more personal experience, I think. When we talked to Alex Noisy of Gaijin Games, I said that his Bit Trip series was like an alternate world where a game development moved forward down a different path. Right. Where some technology never progressed while other gaming elements did. I think this is the portable equivalent of that timeline. Okay. These characters are very 8-bit looking, but really smooth animations that you weren't capable of doing in the 8-bit world. Maybe maybe even in television with more colors mm. and more frames of animation. Now, the Super Brothers are known for their pixel art form. Uh, YouTube, the pixel revolution. Yeah. And then you'll see some of their beautiful retro-modern work. We need to come up with a name for this, this style. The, re- the retro contemporary style? Yeah, yeah. Because it's not going to be contemporary forever. So no. We need, to, we need to think of a name for this. I think I thought of one when I was on the toilet the other day, but now I don't recall. Good place to think of things. Maybe, it was, maybe I thought it was called Pixel Turds. I don't know. Yeah, um, but right now, this title is super hype and enjoying a place of an Angry Birds level. Oh, okay. But I have a feeling. Great. Yeah, I have a feeling Angry Birds might be near exhaustion. I don't know. I look forward to what might come out next from this studio. Maybe Hattress Birds. <laughs> oh, what <laughs> two, a riot! Two Hattresses and you're one on one. Wow. But the hype is deserved. I'm sorry, folks. Yeah, that's right. The hype on this is deserved. The story writing and game environments could be set in like Zeldaville. It even okay. it has the Triforce, but it's upside down, so that can't possibly be the Triforce. So it's an action RPG. It no, it, it is it is a point and click where you want to go or drag okay. where you want to go, and then turn the iPad sideways to battle with your sword and shield. Oh, all right. Or solve puzzles by using your sword. So it sets place in like this Zeldaville type of uh, environment, but the dialogue will use phrases like, he wasn't super stoked about going on the adventure. (laughs) Or, you see a grave marker with blocky skulls on it. So, so it's, it's it's like Shakespeare made easy or something. <laughs> it's a little self-aware. Yeah, exactly. It's a little self-aware and it's a little modern vernacular. But the music's by Jim Guthrie also, and the team recommends using headphones for total immersions. It, it sort of nags that you put on headphones. It keeps telling. And is it you, worth it? Have your you headphones on? You have you? Oh yeah, very much so. Okay, very, it's incredibly atmospheric. Because we've heard this before, and then you're just like, oh, okay, it's not any different. Right. No, definitely for this game, you know, the bit trip, if you uh, get past the controls on that, I think we'll talk about that on a bobble coming up. Okay. Uh, and, you know, there's there's a lot of other games that uh, that are fun as well. In fact, you know what? I, I uh, was watching one of these shows that gets attacks on them. Yeah. And uh, I... Why? I tr- well, because it, they, they promised me my Tyco Drum Master on my iPad. And I'm like, oh. well, I know Namco didn't release Tyco Drum Master in America. I saw it, like, in a commercial for it. I was like, well, I, got, I guess i got to stay tuned. So what they recommend is that you create a Japanese iTunes account. Now, I knew that you weren't going to be able to hook up a credit card with that unless you lived in Japan. Right. So I, you know, I created an account and put my addresses the United States Embassy in Japan, <laughs> and you know, I was able to get in. And you can get the free thing. So I got the free version of Taiko Drum Master, and it it has th- three songs that you could do. Uh, two of them are more traditional songs, like you know, the can can. Oh, one of my favorites. You know, one of those type of things. And then one 
of is more of a, a techno rave song, but it's it's a perfect version of Tycho Drum Master, just like the Nintendo DS. Almost as fun as playing it on a legit version, American version on your PlayStation 2 with the Tycho Drum. But it, it works perfectly with your fingers, and I hope that Namco releases this in America. But you can't buy any more songs, so mm. there you go. What else you got? Well, sticking with the iPad, I actually picked up a game that I was kind of leery about. Yeah. But uh, I'm glad I bought it. Time Crisis 2S. Now, I was surprised because, you know, at first I was like, how good could this game be? I've played Point Blank DS. Uh-huh. And that game, awful. Pile of turds. Pile of turds. Okay. Yeah. Now, why is it bad? Because, you know, I'm just taking a stylus and I'm tapping stuff. And where's the skill? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like point blank in the arcade where you got the plastic clock and you're shooting at the screen. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the same feeling. No. So I was like, how good could this be? Well, I'm going to try it. I end up trying it. And right off the bat, I'm impressed with the presentation, the graphics, and uh, the look of the game. It feels like a time crisis game. Yeah. But here's what's really cool is, yes, you're just tapping the screen to kill enemies, but you also tilt the screen to duck behind cover, mm-hmm. which is something that's you know very much a part of the Time Crisis arcade game with the foot pedal. Uh, and so, that's, that's what I like about it, too. If you decide to not use a tilt and use the foot pedal control, there's little foot pedals on both sides, so it could be yes. left-handed or right-handed players, which is, is very important as well. And they actually kept the diamond plating on the foot pedal. Right. That's what Which is cool, but I actually think that the better version of the game is the one where you providing how you're sitting of course because mm-hmm. I've, sure, I've sure. tried playing this in bed and I'm kind of like half leaning <laughs> it and my guy was just not moving right right but um it's I'm really impressed with this game it's time crisis portable and I don't think currently there's any other hardware that could probably pull off what's happening in this game as far as graphically it's spot on it is a time crisis game it's not like a chibi version or 16-bit 2d version it's time crisis maybe not the most current version but it still looks like a time crisis game the fun factor it's there you're playing time crisis you're shooting guys you're ducking behind cover and then the controls work they're spot on i'm tilting the guy's ducking i'm hitting the guy he's getting shot i was surprised at how well it worked that game really impressed me, you know, because Choo Choo Rocket, while it's fun, it doesn't look like it's pushing the system to its limits. Right. Time Crisis, I was like, wow, they actually were able to not only make it look like Time Crisis, but play like Time Crisis. So, like I said, yeah, there's a big pile of poop out there with the uh, App Store, but there are some amazing games, and I'm just, I, I, I cannot wait to keep going and each month keep going back to talking about the iPad and all these other games I just have to wade through the poop yeah that's the same way I felt about Metal Gear and I think I'll talk about that in an upcoming portable gaming it's very similar except this one you can use a scope and you can you can pinch and zoom like that to get people in your scope and it's the same style of game and there is ducking as well uh, which which happens automatically Namco this is the second game that they've have in-app purchase like this. They give you a free level, and then you can decide whether you want to pay the $8. The only thing that's a little disheartening is the $8. You know, that's, that's a big investment for, are the rest of the levels really going to be that enjoyable to me? And I had to make that decision because I tried Ridge Racer HD, and I tried Time Crisis 2 HD, and I went with 
50 in app purchase of Ridge Racer to get the rest of that. And I'll talk about that in a future portable gaming. Man, bobble. all this bobble teasing. Oh, man. I just got one quick review, too. A great game to play with others is uh, Multipong. Have you seen this? Sure, yep. yep. It uh, it's it's not really all too complex. It's Pong meets Pinball meets, uh, I don't know, Breakout. And it's great for two players. I, I think it goes up to four. You can verse the computer. There's power-ups like Arkanoid, and it's it's fun. And it's not a lot of money, and it's very enjoyable. Right on, man. Hey! Hey. Stick around for the council. I'll be there. Right. Kyle Von Kubik. And speaking of merch, check out all the new pro gear at the pro gear store at wetalkgames.com. Just go to wetalkgames.com, click on the link for pro gear store. Along with the limited edition 25T, the first 25 for the NES, and the new We Talk Games Lady Cut Stack shirts, there's something for everybody. And speaking of something for everybody, and a system that was built for everybody, let's open the line for our special guest, Keith Robinson. We Talk Games is delighted to have the president of Intellivision Lives, Keith Robinson, on the phone. Manhattan Beach, go! Keith, are you there? Yes! <laughs> Fantastic! Can you hear me? Yeah! I can barely hear you. Speak up! Can I hear you? I can hear you! Keith, now you're the uh, president of Intellivision Lives. Technically, it's Intellivision Productions Incorporated. We our do. website is IntellivisionLives.com. Gotcha, gotcha. That's the name of most of our products is Intellivision Lives. But we are technically Intellivision Productions Incorporated. Fantastic. Now, Keith, how did you first come into video games? Way back, I assume, in the late 70s. Well, actually, the very first thing I ever programmed on a computer in the 1950s when I was in high school as a game, I've always been, I've always looked at technology as like, hey, how can we have fun with this? And so back when we first had uh, a little deck um, five computer, I think it was, in our math class, I was programming games. The teacher was kind of like, this thing is for doing serious math. And I'm like, programming games on it. Then through uh, through college, I got a degree in uh, computer science, and um, I was always using it for games and stuff, so when the opportunity came to... Um, I, I first went into special effects, thinking, hey, that's that will be the fun thing to do with computers. But then when um, I heard about the job fair over at Mattel and went over to check out how they do video games, I got stuck in the thing. Stuck in it for years. I've interfaced with deck systems uh, that used to run the steel mills around here, so mm-hmm. it kind of blows my mind that you were trying to yeah. that you were doing yeah. games with that. I worked at Northrop Aircraft Company for a while, aerospace industry, and I was in the uh, department that did microfiche, where they would do the inventory on these parts. I used to, Northrop used to build the fuselages for the Boeing seven forty seven aircraft, and they would do these um, inventory weekly inventory reports on microfiche. And the microfiche machine was operated by a little deck computer. And uh, they got mad at me because I programmed it to play blackjack. (laughs) (laughs) Was Mattel, Mattel Electronics at the time? Did they branch off at that time or were they still just under Mattel umbrella? When it started out in the late 70s, um, it was Mattel Toys and it had a design and development department. The design and development department, video games 
we're starting, you know, arcade machines, and there was the Odyssey and all of this, and there was the Atari 2600 machine that had just come out, and so they said, hey, we should, we should get into that. So originally they did it as part of Mattel Toys. Mattel Electronics was actually a brand of Mattel Toys, but then started making so much money, and within like one or two years, it had, it was like outstripping the toy company in revenue, so they actually spun it off into a separate company under the Mattel Incorporated brand then. They just, they, they created a new layer of bureaucracy, Mattel Incorporated, that's then owned Mattel Toys, and then and owned Mattel Electronics, and a few other subsidiaries. I see. Were you around when they first released, like, their Mattel handheld football and baseball and basketball and things like that? No, I joined just before, I joined in 1981, okay. just before they uh, branched out with Mattel Electronics, a separate company. Um, the original stuff, the little uh, little two-bit processor, four-bit processors for the handheld stuff was 1978, I believe. And what happened there was, that's about when the Atari 2600 came out, and the design and development department said, hey, we need to do our own video game console. And so they started doing it, but the Atari 2600 was not a big success when it first came out. It way under sold what they thought. So when that kind of news came out that, oh, the Atari 2600 is doing very well, they kind of put on hold the plans for the um, Mattel console, the Intellivision console, and instead the people who they had hired to do all that work, they had to have them do something. So they said, hey, well, look, Texas Instruments has these little four-bit processor things, and that's why they did the handheld games, was to kind of keep those guys busy. I see, I see. Now, did Mattel pretty much stay out of your way, or did they constantly call the shots like, we need a game featuring Patrick Duffy. Well, what happened, that's, what's interesting is when they first started, the marketing department did kind of sit down with a list and say, well, we want to do these sports games and we want to have a game that's like Tempest and a game that's like Centipede and a game that's like this and like that and like this. And so it kind of came a whole big list of stuff that was kind of based on the, the hit things that were out there at the time. And so a programmer could come in and look at that list and say, mm, hey, I like Centipede. I'd like to do a Centipede type of game. But from that moment on, there was really no no involvement from marketing. Nobody kind of did that. Uh, at the time, games were so small and cheap to produce that usually one person took the lead and designed the whole game themselves. I mean, if they needed help with um, with graphics or with music, they could get some help. But otherwise, it was generally a one-person thing. Marketing was happy as long as they could say, hey, look at Lock and Chase. That's our answer to Pac-Man or something right. like that when they were talking to retailers. Now, in 1983, when money started being lost, marketing then took hold of the reins a little bit more and started really micromanaging the games. Gotcha. But before then, 1981, 1982, into the beginning of 1983, the programmers had pretty much free reign in terms of what they wanted to do and just kind of like finish it and then give it to the marketing department. So there was an initial interest in the marketing department wanted to have games of a certain type. Let's have some educational games, sports games, let's do games or like these arcade games and things. But, um, yeah, the, the programmer pretty much had free reign over it. Uh, like I said, later it became a little more constrictive. Especially when they decided that they were not a hardware company, they were a software company, uh-huh. and that while the Intellivision was still kind of their big brand, they were going to do games for all platforms. And so a game that came out, either the game had to be one that would only be played on Intellivision, and so they could really push it as this is the new big game. Otherwise, a game like Burger Time, we wanted it on Intellivision, Atari. We wanted it on the IBM PC. We wanted it on the Apple II. We wanted it across the board. And when you did that, they wanted it to look the same on all the platforms. So the marketing was in there to make sure that when they were advertising Burger Time, 
that they can say, hey, it's for a television or for Atari 2600, that whoever bought it, whatever platform you bought it for, you wouldn't be disappointed. You'd still be getting burger time. Gotcha. And you started as a programmer? Yes. The coincidence was that I had been doing stuff in movies, uh, special effects, and I had um, been over to Information International, which was a company in Culver City, and they were doing effects for the movie Tron. And I was just there to kind of talk to them and see what the latest was and what the computer graphics was that they were doing. And then a couple of days later, there was the uh, job fair at Mattel. When I went over there, I said, oh, yeah, it's just over looking at Tron. Well, they had licensed Tron. And the programmer, Don Daglow, who had been doing the game Tron Solar Sailor, had been promoted to manager or director or something, and, and he no longer had time to work on the game, so they were looking for a new programmer who could take over this Tron game. And I walked in the door, and they said, hey, hire him. Oh, so right. Before I knew it, they you know they had me behind a monitor uh, creating the game Tron Solar Sailor. Oh, fantastic! And did you also work on Distotron or no? Uh, no, the the, the Distotron was an arcade game, and there was no relation between the Midway arcade games, the Tron and Distotron, and the um, in television games, which were Tron Deadly Discs. Oh, that's it, Deadly uh, Discs. That's what I mean. Mazatron. Yeah, Deadly Discs. That was done by a guy named Steve Sensen. No, that was that was finished by the time I started there. Okay. In uh, October of '81, he had already finished that one, and uh, Russ Half was working on a game called Mazatron, and then this was the third one, and this was the voice game that had been kind of put on hold because of Don's promotion. So I started working on that. But we were working on it while the movie was being made, so uh, I was regularly going out to um, to Disney Studios and seeing the film in production and, and had the script and the um, storyboards and stuff. And they would always be sending me stuff. And what was the funny thing was, just like a week or two before the game, my game was going to be finished, they sent over a package of stuff from Disney, and there was a, um, a drawing of grid bugs. I go, Grid Bugs? That wasn't in the script. That's not in the movie. And what had happened was, is that Midway had needed something for their Tron game, and so had asked Disney to put something like that in the movie. And if you actually watch the movie, the original Tron, Grid Bugs are on the screen for about 10 seconds or 15 seconds of the voiceover. I see. They're not computer generated. They were done by hand animation, and the character Yori says, boy, we better watch out for those Grid Bugs. If they get us, we're, in, we're dead. And that's it. And that's the one time you see the grid bugs, and boom, they're off the screen. And that was put in there strictly for the arcade game of Tron. Right. And so I get this thing and go, grid bugs. And so I, I have to program, you know, so I frantically, my boss said, oh, just leave them out. I said, oh, they're, they're going to be in there. So I frantically programmed grid bugs into Tron Solar Sailor at the last minute. Wow. They were not originally in there. That was just a case where the movie was was uh, changed to fit the um, to fit the video game, the arcade game. That's something. Uh, that synergy there. Yeah. Speaking about voices, what about IntelliVoice? How'd that uh, all go down? Uh, well, the, the thing was is that when Mattel first said, "Gee, we want to do a video game," there was nobody at Mattel who knew anything about games, electronics, and that. So they, they weren't looking for some place that did. And there was a company out in Pasadena called APH. And APH was a company that did embedded programming. So if you bought a toaster and had a computer in it, or if you, or they would program for the space shuttle or whatever, anything that had, anything that had a computer that you didn't program but was built into it already pre-programmed. A guy named Glenn Hightower ran that. 
so they made a deal with him and with APH to develop a video game system. Well, the fact of the matter was there was a company called General Instruments, a hardware company that made uh, chips uh, back in Massachusetts, I think it was, and they had actually come up with a plan for making video games, a video game system. And so in their little cookbook, they were called, the, the books where they would be catalogs of their parts, they had, here's the General Instruments 1610 microprocessor, and here's what it can do, and here's, here's you know. But then they said, and if you pair it with this sound chip that we make, and you pair it with this um, interface chip that we make, and all this other, you could make a video game system. And so basically, out of this catalog, they put together the basis of Intellivision. I see. And, and then we tweaked it. They originally did not have an, a way for programmers to create their own graphics. The, uh, the way that the hand controllers work were all developed by engineers at Mattel. But essentially, they went with that plan out of that. And so they were using the General Instruments chipset. Well, General Instruments also made a, um, a voice chip. And it really was for, you know, like cars, door is a jar, things like that. Uh, and they said, hey, you know, we have this chipset, you know, we have this, why don't we, why don't you make the thing talk too? Because the General Instruments 1610 processor talks to this, this sound chip, this voice chip, you can make it talk. Now, the problem was that memory at that time was very expensive. Mm. And so, you couldn't make it talk a lot. <laughs> and so we had these guys came in. They actually hired writers to write scripts for this stuff. And then, uh, you know, they'd write these wonderful scripts, and then they'd be pared down to about 50 words. Gotcha. Because they just didn't have the space to put it in there. The first one they did, uh, at the time we were doing um, games that were 4K in 4K in size, and then they kind of upped that to 6K. The original um, Dungeons and Dragons game was 6K. And then, ooh, big generous stuff. They said, you know, we could probably afford to do some games that are the really, you know, big ticket items, 8K games. And then for the very first one of the um, voice games, they said, and for voice, we're going to add four more K and make it a 12K game. Now, 12K today is, is smaller than a right. second Right, sure, sure. Um, it's, just, it's just ridiculous. So it's, it's a ridiculous amount of space. So you cannot really do a decent script. But the requirement at first was that they wanted to make the games, that the voice had to be essential to the gameplay. So you had to figure out some way that you couldn't play the game without the voice. Mm. So they did Space Spartans, they did Bomb Squad, they did Tron Solar Sailor. You have to have the voice. We kept saying, why don't you just make it an enhancement? Because if you make it that you have to, then you have to have this. And so you're, you're cutting your market down. Sure. And they finally realized that. So um, when they did the uh, the fifth one, which was the baseball one, the Major League Baseball, it's simply an enhancement. The voice is of a um, you know Vin Scully type announcement. They actually tried to hire Vin Scully. Oh. But um, you know, just doing the play-by-play. Oh! All right, ball one, all that. It just makes the game more fun. Sure. But you didn't have to have it to play the game, so they could still sell it without the voice. So they only did the um, the five games total, and I'm leaving one out. Let's see, there was oh, B-17 Bomber, of course. I left out B-17 Bomber. B-17 Bomber, Bomb Squad, Space Spartans, and Tron Solar Sailor were the first four they did, and the ones that essentially you have to have the voice unit to play them. And then the World Series Major League Baseball is an enhancement. And had we kept doing them, they would probably in the future would have been mostly enhancements. You couldn't put enough voice in there to really make it a um, integral feature of the game. You know, baseball is perfect since it's a cyclical game. The same thing is said over and over again. You expect that. Mm -hmm. But in these other games, it says the same thing over and over again. You kind of go, I'm kind of tired of that person saying that. <laughs> 
And I guess when they brought out the tape drive, they just pulled off the audio portion of that. They, they no longer needed the IntelliVoice. The original keyboard component did have a tape drive. You know, they killed that by 1982. That thing was remarkable. That actually had a digitally controlled, for the time, it was just like a remarkable machine. It essentially was an Apple II computer. It had a, it had a um, 6502 processor in it that then interfaced with the Intellivision for the graphics and had this digital tape drive for the sound effects and everything. The problem was they could never manufacture them cheaply enough to actually, you know, make any money selling them. Right so on. they only made a couple thousand of them. Oh, yeah. My girlfriend had the printer and everything. Oh, boy. In basic, and I guess, well, what, what uh, language was on there? Basic, right? Well, there was a basic cartridge. See, if you're talking about the original keyboard, the big brown one, mm-hmm. not the later one. Okay, the big brown one. Yes, that actually had basic that was actually put together by Microsoft. I think that my uh, my old boss on his resume still says that he knew Bill Gates and Paul Allen when they were poor because um, we hired them to do the Microsoft Basic for the Intellivision keyboard component before they did DOS. That was their specialty at the time, was doing Basic for various computers. Gotcha. How did the Aquarius fit into this picture? <laughs> well, what happened was... We had this computer, the keyboard component, the 6502, and eventually they just said, we can't manufacture this cheaply enough, so they killed it. But since they had promised people that there was going to be a keyboard component and there was going to be a computer for it, they came out with what was called the Entertainment Computer System, which was a very stripped-down version. It essentially was a module that had a keyboard. It had um, uh, an extra 2K of RAM in it. It um, had another sound chip in it. But it was a very limited thing, and it had a very limited basic built into it. It was not really a keyboard thing, but it kind of met the requirements so that uh, the, the main fear was we're going to be sued by the FTC or having sold the Intellivision with the promise it was eventually going to be a computer and then not delivering. So this thing just met that that promise. But Dave Chandler, who was the head of kind of experimental and stuff for Intellivision, the engineer who had actually designed the um, hand controller system for the Intellivision had done really the basic engineering work on the on the Intellivision originally really wanted there to be a nice computer under the Mattel Electronics name. And when they killed the keyboard component, he was looking around saying, well, can't we do something? And it turned out that the company in Hong Kong that actually manufactured the Intellivision, a company called Radisson, they had designed a computer, uh, a little computer for... It was at the time, you had the, the Timex Sinclair computers mm-hmm. and, the, and the original VIC-20 computer. And it was along those lines. And they said, well, why don't we put that under the Mattel Electronics name. So that's what they did. They, they took that computer, they called it the Aquarius, they made a few changes in it to make it more of a gaming computer. They released that, and it came out and almost instantly failed. So they just <laughs> took it off the market within three months of, of introducing it or something. And see, this wasn't Mattel's fault. This was everybody in the industry's fault. Everybody thought people wanted smaller computers. Even IBM, you know, they'd come out with the IBM PC, mm-hmm. which, you know, had the maximum of 640K memory space, came with 64K. The basic IBM PC, you stored programs on a tape drive. It had a, a, a jack in the back to plug in a tape drive for the mm-hmm. thing. 
that was considered too powerful a computer. And so they came out with the PC Junior. Everybody went in the wrong direction. They thought everybody wanted a smaller computer. So you had those computers. That's the, the Sinclair, which I think was a British computer they sold here in the Timex brand. And, and uh, you know, all the original Commodore stuff. You had the VIC-20. Everybody wanted smaller. But in reality, people wanted the applications. People wanted things to do something, which required a bigger computer. And once you started having spreadsheets come in and, and, um, and writing programs, various word processing programs, you needed a more powerful computer. And so things like Aquarius just were not in any way powerful. They, and so, you know, nobody wanted them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I still have a box so, one upstairs. I love the box art for I have one of the Tron games for that still in a box, which is a beautiful box. The art. only Tron game that released for the Aquarius was uh, Deadly Discs. And the problem there was there was no graphics RAM in an Aquarius. Mm-hmm. The programmer could not define what things looked like. Uh-huh. So they just had to kind of guess at, well, gee, what will a programmer probably want? Well, they'll probably want a robot. They'll probably want a running man. They'll probably want this and that. So those graphics were built into the Aquarius, but as new games were designed for it and people started doing new things, you were limited to the graphics that were built into the Aquarius. I see, I see. Another one of its limitations. I remember that an artist, at the time, I was working at the Mattel facility in France, and uh, we had an artist over there, and he saw the specifications for the Aquarius for the first time, and he says, how do I define something? new and I said well you can't Um, we've had programmers we had artists design a permanent set of graphics for it and he looked at it and he said I know the perfect slogan for this computer and this was 1983 when I was over there and I said what slogan he said Aquarius system for the 70s Yeah, I guess you could do Pong, uh, paddles, paddles. Yeah, that's about all you could have done on that thing. No, but they they actually, you know, based on the stuff that they did, they did a they did a pretty credible. You know, we did uh, Utopia and uh, and Deadly Discs, and uh, there were a few other games that came out for it. But essentially, it was not going to be a serious computer. That's that explains why the Intellivision uh, version of Deadly Discs looks better than the Aquarius one. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah, you can find the characters. And plus, you know, the other one does not have a video card in it. So, like, if one character passes over another one, the other one has to disappear for a second while the other one passes over it. You can't have pixel-by-pixel pixel objects passing over each other. They have to be like an entire card thing passes over it, so things disappear. It's, it's just not a decent computer. Now, my suggestion was that we use it for doing, like, text-based games, mm-hmm. adventure game type of thing. But Mattel was totally against that. They, you know, they, they built the reputation on graphics and they wanted this thing to be, you know, that they could sell this thing as graphics. So the idea that you would have, it would have been good for that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, I think that I think you could have had some very fun. Yeah, I was a huge fan. I loved playing the, the adventure games back in the 70s. And I kept trying to get them to do some sort of version of that at Mattel, but they always just kind of said, nope, that's not, that's not what we're about. Mm, I see. Well, I know that the, the system existed before you started working there, but what was the mood in the office about the television controller? You know, <laughs> the disc well, the, and the uh, telephone. It's so funny. that As we come out with stuff on other platforms... We will hear, like, we got a review from uh, uh, the the, um, the San Jose Mercury News or something like that. 
they take very seriously their game reviews up there. Mm-hmm. And when we started coming out with our stuff, they said, the greatest thing about this is, is you can play these in television games now without that horrible hand controller. <laughs> but then we get other reviews that say, well, these games don't have the hand controller. How can you have the true experience? Uh-huh. So the problem we have is that half the people who played in television hated the hand controller, and the other half, that to them is the experience of it. So it's yeah, like, it's true. you know, we just, we can't make everybody happy with this stuff. They're, they're always, you know, you know, I never really objected to the uh, original hand controller. Now, where the, the people in-house hated was the one that was on the Intellivision 2 because the um, the side buttons aren't rubber. They're plastic, and mm-hmm. they can they hurt after you play them for a while. There's no bubble on the numbers, so you don't get a nice little click feedback when you gotcha. press the buttons. So they were really, especially Bill Fisher, who did the game Spacehawk, he, he just fired off memos and was just... <laughs> so angry when the television two came out about this you just and to this day he still if you bring that up he goes that was the worst thing we ever did we destroyed the whole company because of the hand controllers on <laughs> television two and i think when people really do hate the television hand controllers they may really be thinking of the television two hand controllers because they were awful and and then the and the uh, disc itself it had kind of as you pressed it and the disc went down, there was kind of a sharp um, edge. The, the, the hole it went into kind of mm-hmm. had a sharp edge around it. So you, you actually kind of slice up your thumb as you went around the thing. So the original hand control, the Intellivision one, the ones for the uh, the later, the INTV ones, they were kind of between the two. I think they had rubber side buttons, but I think that they did not have the bubble on the uh, numbers. So... They aren't as bad, but they're still not as good. The original in television, I thought, the hand controller is pretty good. The, the, the limitation of that hand controller was that because it has like 15 buttons on it, mm. marketing wanted us to do games that use the 15 buttons. <laughs> this is just the marketing way of thinking. Hey, you know, uh, uh, an Atari's only got one button. We got 15, so we better show that you need 15 buttons. Right. And so we kept designing games like you could have made them a fine game with fewer buttons, but we had to use all these buttons. Sometimes we're having finding excuses for using the buttons. I think that uh, you know, some games are very fun, like Space Spartans. I think that the only kind of drawback of the game is how many buttons you have to press to just to like move from one area to another. You have to like turn on the tracking computer or turn it off or repair this. And there's just a million buttons on the thing. That must be a challenge bringing it to the newer consoles. That's always been our our problem. Is because after the Intellivision, no console has ever had that many buttons. So on the PlayStation Two, on the GameCube, and everything, you can have to compromise. And then on the um, keyboard components, when you're playing a two-player game, and you've got a game like two-player Sea Battle, you. <laughs> You've got like half the buttons on the keyboard being mapped to this thing, trying to keep you track of it. That's what I love about our DS version and why I was so adamant that we had to come out with this thing on the DS. Because in the DS, you've got the lower screens, the touch screen. You can come up with that, um, the overlay right there. Gotcha. And so when you play it on the DS, it's just, it's great. It's like the, the DS is the first time we can really play it and kind of get the feeling of what it was on the original in television. Also, the um, our versions on the iPhone and the iPad aren't bad either because they're also uh, touchscreen stuff. So that's now where you're really getting into the ability to not have to do all of this kind of multiplexing and stuff like you have to go on the PlayStation 2 to create that. So I, I really like that. I, the, I think the DS the best thing we've come out with. I'm just really proud of that product. My wife's favorite uh, game is Snafu. 
Ah. Mike Mikoff's game. Yeah. Uh, well, the nice thing about Snafu is, and here's the funny thing about Snafu. Snafu was originally going to be one of the handheld games. Oh. Hmm. And it was going to be this little tiny game for a four-bit processor. And so it was, it was designed very economically. So when it came time to actually make a 4K cartridge, <laughs> this thing was way under 4K. It was the first time there was so much extra space in the cartridge. <laughs> so they put music in it. And yeah. so that was like the first home video game from any company that had music going the whole time the game was going on. There was all that yeah. space in it. So Russ Liedlich was able to write two different themes that continually played while you were playing the game. It's just wonderful. But that became about because the original game was just so economical in space. I see. Well, wait till I tell her because she, she does, you know, both tunes. <laughs> Beginning to end and as it gets quicker. Do you have a copy of our Intellivision and Hi-Fi disc? No, I don't. Oh, this this is this was just a little pet project we did simply simply out of love, and that was a few years ago we put together a music album, music CD. It's called Intellivision Hi-Fi. It sells like ten dollars on our site, but some of it, only about a third of it, is the actual music from the games. Okay. The other two-thirds of it, we got musicians to do updated versions of the themes. And the Snafu is my favorite. There's one called Snafu City. It's a jazz piece based on those themes. And it's just wonderful. It takes those pieces from Snafu and turns them into a real snappy little jazz piece. And it's just excellent. Well, now I know what to get her. Hey, there you go. Well, we got a deal right now. It's called the... Um, the Las Vegas Lounge Trio that comes with our two uh, PC versions, Television Lives and Television Rocks, and and the music CD, all in it for I forget what it is. I think it's I think it's like um, maybe forty dollars. Where normally that would cost seventy five dollars. You bought all this stuff separately. Okay, uh, you know I remember come to our site and, <laughs> yeah. and and get a deal. Definitely, I remember picking up in Television Lives for my Mac uh, you know, like years and years ago. Were you yeah. involved with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. The only reason why, I mean, these, these discs right now are hybrid discs, and the only thing is we haven't come out with a new version, and part of that, I just have to admit, is the fact that we just have inventory on it that we're waiting to run out of. <laughs> I see. At some point, uh, when we do that, then we will have the newer version. We don't we don't even say it's a Mac disc anymore, uh -huh. because even though there's a Mac version on it, you need Mac uh, OS 9, which means you have to use a non-Intel-based Mac. Gotcha. And since most people have an Intel-based Mac now, you're not going to be able to run it. So we don't to tell people it's a real Mac-based thing because, you know, most people can't run it on, sure. on their computer today. But um, we have developed a new a new one, and we will be coming out with that probably later this year. Okay. I used to buy, like, modules or something used to come out routinely. Is, is that right? I mean, OS 9 was quite a while ago, but uh, I remember like you would get an X amount of games and then I don't remember if there was... Not, not on ours. We, what we okay. did originally, when we first got the rights back in 1997... We released Astro Smash for free on the website. Okay. And then about a year after that, when we first came out with the um, on uh, PC Mac, we released a three pack. It was just called IntelliPack Number One, and it had three games on it for free that you could download and give you a sample of what was on the disc. And then when we came out with Intellivision Rocks, Intellivision Rocks is made up of the games that Activision and iMagic did for the Intellivision. Okay. We came out with another pack, and then we came out with a third one. And so we had the we had the three IntelliPacks, and they were samples that came out, and we spaced those out every one or two years. Then we pretty much said, well, okay, there, there's a sample for you. There's, there's like nine games free. Now it's time to pony up a little dough and, and buy the disc. <laughs> right, right, right. 
Well, I'd love to hear about what the environment around the office was like, but uh, let's let's get into what you're doing now. Well, what we're doing now is we we got back the rights. Yeah, the rights went from in television in 1984. They sold them to a liquidation company that essentially bought it so they could liquidate all of the inventory. Once they liquidated all the inventory and there was nothing left of the intellectual property, that was then purchased by one of the guys who used to work for Mattel. And he then started INTV Corporation, got back the original programmers to some new games. They did like two new games a year through 1990. Hmm. Then uh, he went on because finally video games had kind of come back with, with Nintendo and Sega. So he got out of the market. And then in 1995, I created a website essentially to talk about this because Mattel would never let our names be on the uh, credits. There were no credits on games. Uh-huh. We were afraid Atari would steal us away. So I put together a site just so people could know who did what game and some trivia and stuff. And the response was overwhelming from the number of fans out there who wanted a way to play the games again. So uh, we looked at emulation and what could be done. And I put together a company and uh, with some investors, and we bought the rights in 1997. Since then, just getting it on any platform to bring these games back. We've been on the PC, on the Mac. We were on the original PlayStation, we were on PlayStation 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were one of the first licenses for um, phones to THQ. We did an Xbox version. We did a GameCube version. And then we did the plug-and-play units, which right. are um, nice little, you know, they're mostly for kids, but they're they're a nice introduction to Intellivision. You put the batteries in it, you plug it into the uh, TV set or into your into your cars, television. It was very funny. When we first licensed these things, we thought, well, that's going to be something that families that can't afford a console will get. We found that a lot of them were being bought by families that had TVs in their DVRs so they just wanted to keep the kids, you know, occupied on the way to school. Yeah. And so I was like, yeah, hey, we throw that in the back and it's like it costs $10 and if it breaks, we don't care. So that introduced a lot of people to Intellivision. Recently, we've gone on to the iPhone, the iPad, the DS um, is a huge thing. Microsoft has their game room, which is a uh, internet-based thing on the Xbox 360 where you can play the games. Also on uh, Xbox 360, they have the uh, Xbox Live where you can go and purchase things uh, and you can purchase the Xbox version. The entire image of the Xbox um, in television lives. You can play that on your Xbox 360. Yeah, we're just getting these games out there and uh, so people can play them because it's not just nostalgia, it's not just the history and everything. You know, these games are fun. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fun to play Astro Smash for for a while. That reminds me, uh, I'm I'm a big collector of uh, weird things. Like uh, I have a I have a GameCube branded set of walkie talkies. Like I I want to get a good set of walkie talkies. Of course, I'm going to go with the GameCube walkie talkies. But I have an Intellivision blister, still blister packed in the other room that I just like to hang on my wall and look at. It's a handheld little black and white LCD type of thing with two controllers sticking out of it, and. Right. Uh, <laughs> What's, how'd that happen? Uh, that happened because the company Technosource, that made the plug-and-play units, mm-hmm. they're a Hong Kong company. Okay. And they had made some games, and they came to us and said, hey, we've, we've got these, these handheld games we made over there, and they, um, you know, they're not exactly in television games, but a lot of them are, you know, here's a game where it's a sea battle type yep. of game, here's a helicopter-based game, and they kind of said, you know, could we use the Intellivision brand on these games? 
and we thought, well, that's a nice little way to kind of get the brand out there. You know, we, there's the one part of it where, yes, you come to us and you buy the Intellivision for the DS and you're going to get the games original, emulated, here's the thing. But then the other side of it is that, you know, you want to get the Intellivision brand out there just to rec- get people to recognize what Intellivision was, maybe lead them to those, you know, those games. And so um, here was a couple of uh, little things that were going to sell for less than ten dollars would be in the store so so we licensed the name to those and uh you know they're not really based on the games in particular but uh but we played them and they were they were kind of fun little things to play so so we licensed it to that i i mean I, i'd love we, to we, we, kind of, we kind of look at that we kind of like that more like almost like when we sell a t-shirt or a mug or something like sure. that it gets the brand out there sure sure and one thing is if you go and look at these um, plug-and-play things, not just ours, but also the ones like the little Pac-Man ones mm-hmm. or anything like that, they're all based on the same thing. Some company in Hong Kong figured out a way to take the old NES chipset, yeah. the sound and everything, and ROM, and put it onto one chip that was battery-operated. It could be operated by a battery. And so all of those games are the original games reprogrammed for the NES. So when you get one of our plug-and-plays, essentially what you're getting is the Intellivision games reprogrammed for the original NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System. And uh, that makes a lot of the Intellivision fans angry. Ooh, the sound effects aren't the same on Astro Smash. Ooh, the colors aren't the same. But yeah, you're, you're, because you're getting a Nintendo version. But on the other hand, we sold three and a half million of them, which allowed us to do wow. that the reason we're on the DS now, which people love. The reason we're on the DS, we paid for the development of ourselves out of that from the money we got for the plug-and-play units. And the plug-and-play units have introduced a lot of kids to the Intellivision brand, which sure. has been very helpful also for us. So, you know, sometimes a little compromise has to be made there, and we hope the fans will understand that. But some, you know, they, they killed us on um, on Amazon. We got like a two-star rating. Uh, not because they were looking at, not because they were looking at, oh, the games aren't fun or something like that, uh-huh. but because the games aren't identical to the original <laughs> version. And people say, why did you allow this abomination to happen? They're not the original <laughs> games. And, well, no, in some cases, they're not. This is the NES version of television or the little handheld things. Yeah, okay, those those were created totally independent of Intellivision originally when we put the brand on them. So some things, you know, the console games are emulated, the um, iPad and iPhone games are, the uh, PC and the Mac games, the DS game is. There you're getting the actual original ROMs playing on emulation, and we do what we can to keep everybody happy, but sometimes we make a few people mad. <laughs> Well, you know, I, like I said, that blister pack is just, I would love to get, rip them out and, and play them, but it just looks so uh, great in that <laughs> blister pack. And just it's just so unusual to me that I think it's an extension of pop culture and the influence of Intellivision. Oh, yeah. I, I, we did, I, I forget how many of those we did. I think there was about 10 of them. And there's different types. And the one that's got okay. the two controller, I believe, actually is a cartridge-based one. I think it comes yeah. with three that's cartridges right. that you that's put right. into it. So. That's right. That's right. And, yeah, I, I just thought it was kind of fun to have those out there. <laughs> you know, ones that, the ones that keep bothering me is just ones that, are, uh, that have a vibration feedback. And the thing is that if you... If you're just moving the box around on the shelf or something that wrong, you can actually set it off because it's got a demo mode that'll play. So all of a sudden, it'll like knock itself off the shelf. And I'll, I'll hear the same something going, knock the, wait, what's, oh, that thing turned itself on. <laughs> I have to get me one of those. Now, uh, I know it's on the iPad. I picked it up as soon as I saw it, but it, it shocked me a little bit that VH1 is actually uh, releasing this as well. So I can only assume VH1 contacted you. 
Yeah, well, what happened was a number of years ago, VH1 was doing a series for their network called uh, I Love the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, they actually had three of them. I Love the 80s, I Love the 80s 2, and I Love the 80s 3D, which isn't really 3D. They just use 3D <laughs> sure. uh, for laugh. Who doesn't? Um, but uh, they contacted us and they said, hey, we're, we're, we, um, we're, they're just asking permission to show it and to show some of the graphics. And I think they, they may have ran the, um, the George Clinton commercial that they got from us. So they, were, mm. they just wanted permission to do a segment on the Intellivision. So sure, that'd be great. And then they contacted us and said, well, gee, we had so much of a good feedback from that. We'd like to, uh, can we do some shockwave-based uh, games based on uh, that? So actually, if you go to the DH1 site, you'll find they have about eight of our games in shockwave that you can play right on your browser. Okay. Then they started saying, we could monetize this and do it on uh, handhelds. So they actually made a contract to do that, and they didn't really do it, I mean, on, on uh, wireless. And it didn't move very fast until the um, iPhone came out. And then they started looking at the, they said, hey, the iPhone, we think that'll really be nice. And then when the iPad was coming out, Apple contacted MTV Networks to see, do you have any content that we could use as the introductory launch for the iPad? Uh And they said, well, how about this Intellivision stuff we're working with? And they said, that'd be great. So that was a combination of VH1, Apple, and everybody saying, Let's launch the iPad and at the same time do an iPhone version and get it out there. Uh, the only thing I, I wish that iPad version had was an in-game shop, and I think that would be uh, it's a real nice little interface, a really fun uh, title. Well, the iPhone does have that. The iPhone version is free, and you get Astro Smash for free. You just go to Gate One Classic Presents in television for iPhone. It's a free app. And television for free, great deal. And then it's got an in, you know, it's got a menu in it uh, where you can buy additional games, Kitchen Ice and Night Stalker and thing for ninety nine cents each. On the iPad one, they simply went with a different pricing scheme, and I was not privy to the reasons behind it. But uh, some a marketing person said this is the way to do it. And so the iPad one is, um, I forget, three dollars, four dollars, whatever, and you get six games. Right, right, yeah. Um, and then what we're hoping is is that there's enough of an interest in it that then we can come out with more games in the future all right keith well hey thank you very much uh, everybody knows where to go in televisionlives.com i'd love to have right. you back on talk about the anytime. environment of the office anytime and- pretty much pretty much you have to shut me up when i start talking about the television <laughs> well that's why i love guests like you because it's so number one it's easy and number two you've been around since the beginning basically well you know this second is, second this is 30 years of my life it's 30 years and so there's just so many stories in there Thanks again for being on We Talk Games. You bet. Take you care. bet. Thanks a lot. Intellivisionlives.com, and I'm sure we'll be checking back in with Keith at some time in the near future. Let's get Johnny Capcom on the horn. Iredale. Johnny Capcom, go. What you mightn't realize is uh, by listening to uh, what I have to say sometimes is that I am quite up on what's going on you know, with the new games. Oh, uh, I, I talk I talk a lot about the oldies, but you know I'm hip, you know. Sure, yeah, yeah. You're one of the kids. Yeah, and I'm so down with ups that I have a game that is yet to appear on the newest system ever. Fantastic. That, yeah, the the 3ds because I've been playing Legend of Zelda: Ocarina of Time. So, so, soon to come out. Ocarina of Time, you say? Yeah. <laughs> Very good. That is <laughs> brand spanking new. 
Yeah, but you know, it will be new soon. I've been playing on the GameCube. Uh, I don't think I can really say anything that hasn't been said before about um, Ocarina of Time. You know, it's, it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, very, very good game. Not my favorite. Uh, now, do you wear uh, the 3D glasses when you play this, so it's in full 3D? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, I wear the 3D glasses so I get a full 3D headache <laughs> from looking at my uh, my television. You know, does it tell you to take a break every three minutes? Yeah, it does. Yeah, and um, now what is this uh, ocarina? The ocarina is a little kind of musical instrument. You know all about musical instruments. Oh, right? that thing, that flute. Yeah. Okay. I mean, sure, there's going to be an ocarina section. Uh, you know, you're going, to, you're going to bring out a sequel to Inorganic Mumbians. It's going to be an ocarina-heavy album. It right? will. It will be. Yes. <laughs> Ganondorf, the princess, uh, time travel, swords, uh, horses, little fairies. You know what you're going to get out of a, a Zelda game. It's going to be, there's going to be those moments that are just so obtuse. You know, where you're kind of sitting there going, what? I've killed everything. I have gone over every single inch of this dungeon. Mm -hmm. I'm still not out. What do I have to do? Oh, that's right. I have to crack that urn or I have to do something else that I didn't see because it was poorly hidden in a broken pixel or something. That will happen. (laughs) Uh, So look forward to that when you get it for your 3DS. And uh, oh, good luck playing it on your 3DS as well with three and a half hours of battery life. Uh, It is a long game. Wow. (laughs) Other than that, uh, I can think of one person who's going to love my uh, section this one because another Nintendo game. I played Donkey Kong Country Returns. Oh, okay, for the uh, Wii. Yes, indeed. Very good. Now, I oh, I wanted I wanted to play this before I talked to you about it. But how is it? Is it is it as good as Barrel Blast? Oh, it's yeah, it's 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 as it's as good if not better. <laughs> you know? How about Donkey Konga? Uh, well, if you could control this with the congas, you know. Yeah, you might be able to. As long as there's a level where, like, row, row, row your boat and twinkle, twinkle, little star, the music in the background. I can't say it approaches those lofty heights. But, uh, it starts out, it's like the original Donkey Kong. You know, same four mazes, mm-hmm. uh, Mario running up the, the thing. But once you get past that fourth level, you're into a whole new world. And uh, it's all new mazes, and you're going, I'm sorry, I'm talking about Donkey Kong 94. Uh, but, uh, 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 but, uh, no, uh, again, Donkey Kong Country Returns, expensive game, and for a, a man who like myself who tries to, at this moment in time, keep an eye on his finances, I was a bit uncomfortable spending the coin on it. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's been worth. It, I can say that I've had I've had my fun with it. It looks like the original, but just graphically stepped up. Yeah, mm-hmm. the animation of Donkey Kong and Diddy. When they're hanging around and like the stalling animations are uh, great. Yeah. The minecart levels are upped. Everything that you liked about those Super Nintendo games is upped and upped and upped, you know? Right on. And it feels kind of current as well because uh, have you played it yourself? No, not yet. I, I wanted to do it and I forgot. Well, maybe you can uh, confirm or deny that, but it just seems to be a little bit of a bit trip runner feel from us. Hmm. Especially in the, uh, the minecart stages. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, developers have been playing a little bit of Bit Trip Runner. It's a little bit more accessible than the original Donkey Kongs, you know? The, uh, because, obviously, they... I mean, even though these games look like they're made for two-year-olds, they are rock hard. Yeah. <laughs> you know? If you want a colorful, hard-as-nails platform, again, it's a little bit more accessible than the originals. I mean, you can't go wrong, you know? I mean, it's, it's Donkey Kong Country. I mean, you either like it or you don't. But this wasn't made by Rare. 
No, it wasn't, though. No. Okay. The third uh, game we played uh, this month was um, Marvel vs. Capcom 3, Fate of Two Worlds. Oh, you have played that. Is that out? Yes, I have. Uh-huh. And, um, look, it's not going to change your life. You're not going to be crying at the end of it. But it's a, it's a big, bright, colorful, all-over-the-place fighter. If you played any of the other Capcom Versus series, you know, you're going to know what to expect. A lot of neat characters in there, like uh, Hagger and people like that. So, uh, I mean, it comes recommended. I don't, I don't want to sound redundant, but uh, this is a great series of Versus fighters. And Is that oily guy in here? I can. Uh, yeah. Uh, no, he isn't. Ah! Why wouldn't they include the oily guy? Well, maybe if you remembered his name, uh, he'd be a more relevant character. Oily guy. They should have named him Oily Guy, and then I'd remember. Well, maybe Hakan is Turkish for Oily Guy. It very well may be. Now, who's your favorite Marvel person to be in here? Probably Captain America. Okay. The, is there uh, Captain Ireland? There is not a Captain oh, Ireland. Okay. But, uh, you know, Stinky was telling me that he wishes that instead of someone from Ireland, we actually had someone from Wales on. Well, I did live in Wales. Ah! Fantastic! <laughs> you know who else comes from Wales, don't you? Um, Tom Jones. That's right! <laughs> now, why isn't Tom Jones in one of these games? Marvel yeah, versus what? Tom Jones. That's what I want to see. It's not too sexy, to want that, was he? Yeah. <laughs> I think he's too sexy is another reason. <laughs> you know, I mean, that that would be a fantastic game because uh, Tom would be able to shout at everybody, you know. <laughs> and, and without a microphone. Exactly. And make and women faint. He'd be able to knock people out with his giant coin purse that he likes to ha- have hanging out all the time. <laughs> right. And, and then he, it, one of his finishing moves would be to cover you in brassiers from all the ladies throwing their brassiers at him. Oh, indeed. Yeah, and swing him around and stuff, you know. Yeah. He'd, be like a, he'd be like Zangief, but, you know. Uh, Welsh. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think in the, in the states, especially with the with the uh, conservative right, I think they'd have a real problem with that game because he'd be turning all the men gay after seeing him. So, of course. Yeah. See. So it's riddled with with problems right out the door. I'm trying to think uh, who'd be unlockable though in that game. You know. Uh, well, I guess some of the second tier uh, songsters like, you know, Elvis or uh, Glenn Campbell, of course, or maybe even uh, Mel Torme. Oh, and of course, at the bottom of the barrel, you, you got your uh, Frank Sinatra's. I mean, he'd be DLC. He would be. And you know what else? <laughs> uh, and and uh, of course, you'd have Bing. <laughs> All relevant with today's youth. Oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, I'm assuming you're talking about Bing Cosby, yes? Yes. Bing loved... Bing Cosby, yeah, and the Cosby kids. Yeah. Bing Crosby, him, yeah. Giving the old Bing in the chin, from what I understand, but... Uh, <laughs> he was good at beating his kids, so there you go. <laughs> there you have it. Whammo. Games. Hey, speaking uh, of beating people up, as we talked about on one of those episodes of We Talk Games, where we talked about punching kicks and and uh, brawler type games i uh went back and revisited the nes uh, 1991 version of battle toads and of course the super nintendo and uh, genesis versions of battle maniacs in 93 but in 1994 
was the arcade release, rare in conjunction with Electronic Arts, of Battletoads, sometimes referred to as Super Battletoads, but uh, Battletoads Arcade is what I call it. You had uh, two or three player machines, and of course you could play this by yourself, but it was a little bit more difficult. Of course you could be Rash, Zitz, or Pimple. Uh, Six stages, it would take you probably about 45 minutes to an hour to get through the entire game. No hover platforms or speeder bikes, but you do have the fairly easy jetpack level where you're just going down in your jetpack with a very nice uh, parallax scrolling going on in the background. There's also a tougher hover boat spacecraft type of level towards the end. I think it is exactly the end before you fight the boss, which is a shooting type level, but you can't jump. So you can't jump out of the way of bullets. You have to just walk back and forth to try to avoid the enemy's bullets or fireballs and things like this. When you want to shoot, then you your character just stops walking and you become like a 360-degree turret. Like Resident Evil? Except in 2D, yeah. And you have mid- and end-level bosses, huge sprites, but what really sets us apart from the console counterparts is the content. There's blood, gushing blood, decapitations. <laughs> uh, you grab these giant were-rats by the sack and give them, like, eight or nine groin punches. There's pelvic thrust celebrations. The Dark Queen's nipples are clearly visible as in her holographic form. There's vomit, and there's rats taking a crap on the toilet. Uh, it sounds like uh, the Attitude Era of the Battletoads. <laughs> it then. is. They definitely have more attitude than uh, some other green relatives of theirs. Like uh, most arcade haymaker titles, the enemies are repetitive and some levels are impossible to avoid dying. And shelling out big bags of quarters. Now, what do you put in the machines in, uh, in Ireland? Well, when I was a younger man and the arcades were, you know, at their height, it was a 20 pence piece. 20 pence, okay. And the jumping enemies are the worst, uh, much like in the console versions. Um, you know, the hover bikes notwithstanding. And it's a less a matter of, of how high can you get, reference to the Donkey Kongs, and more of the excitement of what comes next until the last levels where you, of course, fight everybody that you already fought. There's no ticking score either. You're ranked by two factors. At the end of each level, you have a kill total, and it ranks the three tur- uh, the three turtles. It ranks the three toads <laughs> against one another, and then whoever has the most kills is the top dog, or I can't remember what they they call it, a top killer or something like this. And then at the end of the game, you're ranked on how quickly you beat the game. Okay. Battletoads Arcade. I recommend it if you can get in a time machine and go to this bar I frequent, which has all these old arcade games. Or if you go back to a time before emulation was a hot topic. Oh, there's that, I guess. Look, I'm just talking about what goes on in Ireland. Sure, sure. I mean, that bar you frequent, I mean, it must be huge. They have everything there. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. Incredible. Oh. Sometimes I mail parts of the bar to my comrades on the show. If you, all, if you've ever received oh, yeah, one of yeah. my bar mails, oh yeah, I know, I know, I know what you're talking about now. <laughs> I, I usually zip them first, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think I may have received uh, some pieces of that bar once. Right. The last game I played this month uh, was one that I speaking of bars. Actually, I got an anecdote and a lesson to teach. Uh, the kids you know 
Yeah. We talked about so much. Um, if you drink heavily, okay, mm-hmm. and talk to random strangers... I'm with you so far. You will get free video games. Is that right? It is indeed. <laughs> because that's what happened to me. Okay. Uh, I ran into an independent developer here in Galway last October uh, and had a drunken conversation with him in the hall waiting to get into the, to the toilet, I believe. And uh, this young man was developing iPod games, and he uh, sent me on the uh, a code so I could play it. And uh, yeah, so, uh, talk to strangers and buy alcohol, free games. Very good. The name of the game uh, is called a uh, Word Snap Contraption. Hmm. It's quite a fun little uh, word puzzle game. Um, basically, you get a uh, five rows, and one is uh, filled up with letters, and the other four are empty. And you're given a couple of letters. Cross this one row and you just pull as many letters out and make words uh, out of them <laughs> as much as you can. Okay. It's kind of like if uh, any uh, people from Ireland or the UK are watching, it's kind of like Countdown, but an iPod game. Mm. Uh, Countdown with uh, Carol Vorderman and your other guy. Roger Moore? I don't know. Yeah, we, but, uh, we had a, I think we, we had a version of this as well. But, of course, now I can't remember the name of it. It was, it was clever. It was hosted by uh, that fellow that did, did Love Connection. Snap. Roger Moore. Yeah, Roger Moore, I think his name was. It's a fun little game. I definitely recommend checking it out. You know, you got to support the uh, the indies. Definitely. Especially the Irish indies, which I didn't really know existed. Yeah. So, yeah, the name is Worst Snap Contraption, so go check it out. The only thing that I will say that uh, was weird was the music was kind of odd. Very odd kind of choice. It was like a kind of music you'd hear, like an instructional video out of Asia. Oh, I but, see. You know, graphics are very pleasant and it works well, so, you know, I can, I can recommend it. Very good. Hey, you know, speaking of instructional videos, I'm looking at the clock, and Wekak Flipglees recommends that everyone take a stretch break. So I thought I'd uh, give everyone a little training. Just follow along with the moves I tell you. Okay. Oops, hold on. Okay, and here we go. Let's begin, shall we? Okay. Left jab, right cross. Left jab, right cross. Left jab, right cross. Keep, keep. Left jab, right cross, left jab, right cross, left jab, right cross, keep, keep. Left jab, left hook, right cross, left jab, right cross, left cross, right hook, left cross, left jab, left hook. Keep, keep. And breathe out. All right, man. Hey, stick around for the council. Okay, we'll do. John E. Capcom. Now, before we get into the council, I mentioned at the top of the show that you would have a chance to win a free Nintendo 3DS. And here's how. A longtime friend of our show, Noel, will be holding a drawing on the afternoon of April 27th, 2011, on his channel, justin.tv slash Noelino, N-O-E-L-I-N-O. This is a global contest except we're prohibited by law. And it's for the North American or U.S. version of the Nintendo 3DS system. All you need to do to be entered for a chance to win is send an email to Nolino Contest. that's N-O-E-L-I-N-O, contest, at hotmail.com. It's hot at Hotmail. That's what I heard. Be sure to include your full name, your email address where you could be reached in case you win, and a paragraph about your most fond gaming memory. Now, you're not going to be judged on your penmanship, your ability to articulate, or your propensity to pontificate. 
It's a completely random drawing, but we'd like to know a little bit about you while you're entering the contest. So thanks go out to Noel for his fantastic April 27th Nintendo 3DS drawing. The drawing provider will not be held responsible for package delays, damage, loss, or stolen items due to shipping. Shipping insurance will be provided. The item cannot be shipped to a P.O. box. This contest is open to anyone in the United States or abroad except where prohibited by law. The contest may be canceled at any time for reasons of hardship. No purchase necessary. To hear the official rules for the contest, back up the audio file about 10 seconds and listen again. And with that, let's open up the lines for the council. The Council of Video Game Millionaires, go! Keith Robinson. Oh, wait. Uh, yeah, no. Uh, Kyle Von Kubik. What's up? Yo. Yo. Uh, Johnny Capcom. Uh, hello. Very good. Now, does everybody have their martinis and sitting in their hot tubs? I am. Very good. And everyone has a girl under each arm? Uh, only uh, under my left arm. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Very good. Well, you know why, don't you? What is that? Second generation gaming. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't forced at all. <laughs> hey, it's time to talk about second generation gaming. And because, you know, this is a topic we don't visit a lot. We, we always talk about Pong and Super Pong and Pong And then we go right to the Nintendo. And Color Pong, <laughs> yes. Wait, I still got a couple more Pongs to name. Oh, keep going. I'm sorry. Um, uh, uh, Paddle Pong. Slider Pong, Pong with Skeet, uh, Fairchild Channel F, Fairchild Channel F, exactly the uh, the cartridge <laughs> Pong, yes, yes, where you play every game looks the same, it all looks like Pong, but now we're talking about second gen gaming and second gen, of course, we had the Intellivision, which you may have heard of, especially a little bit earlier in the show, your Atari twenty six hundred, your ColecoVision towards towards the end, they're getting a little getting a little bit more graphic oomph behind it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and some other things that also came yeah. out around and of course your vectrix uh, your uh, bally astrocade your bally astrocade of course arcadia arcadia, arcadia. yeah as we head it towards the giant second crash of video games video games were actually getting more creative and more elaborate not only that but a lot of things that that started to surface towards the end push to not have the market collapse again were later revisited in later iterations of video game systems and genres and music. Right. So why not I get a little bit started here because I think that I'm going to be talking mostly about the Intellivision and just uh, building on what we started to cover on the interview with Keith. But I want to talk about Intellivision Lives. Because, like Keith had mentioned, there's some folks out there that are very happy that you don't have to use a little 16-directional Frisbee to try to control your movements. Other people say it's just not the same without using that Frisbee. But there was a very important part of that controller, and that was the number pad, the telephone. Uh, Mm -hmm. The programmers were encouraged, and maybe that's even a little bit too soft of a word, to integrate that keypad with the games. Threatened. Yes. (laughs) We must start using all 900 buttons on the Intellivision controller. That's why you had those neat overlays that went over those keypads. Exactly. Uh, It's great to play these titles on your Xbox. It's great to play them on your PS2. It's great to play it on your GameCube and uh, on your Windows machines, your Mac machines. If you want to treat yourself, 
pick up the Nintendo DS version of Intellivision Lives. Now, every version of Intellivision Lives that come out for the Mac, the Xbox, the PlayStation 2, or the GameCube, they all come with about 60 games. Some are going to have... That's a lot of games for your money. Sometimes the games won't be on every version of them. There's there's different games that made the list. There's different games that didn't make the list. If you're picking up Intellivision Lives for your Nintendo DS, you're not going to be able to play Backgammon. So if you're picking it up to play Backgammon, forget it. Just put it back Uh. on the shelf. Sell it. Don't accept shipment of it. I want Backgammon. Well, (laughs) then you're just going to have to get it on your Xbox, your GameCube, your PlayStation 2, and your Windows or Mac. Or... Yes. Go out and find any old man, and he'll play with you. Right? Don't worry. <laughs> there you go. Old people, the next generation of video games. <laughs> Outside of having the Frisbee control on this, the Nintendo yeah. DS version is the best version to have. You have the great box art. You have instructions that are easy to follow. And the lower touchpad is the overlay for that title. Nice. So, number one. So it changes just, on the fly, depending on the game. Exactly. And and. And when you go out and buy these games, first of all, the game that you're going to have the most, the Super Mario Brothers slash Duck Hunt game for Mm -hmm. the Intellivision is Backgammon. Almost everybody has Backgammon, boxed instructions, overlays, and everything, if you you own an Intellivision. A la the coaster on my desk, which is a Atari Pac-Man cartridge. That's the one. Yes. But you have those overlays, and they're great, because some of these overlays, if you're a collector of the original in television, you might not have ever seen, and you're like, how the hell do I play this game, and you never know. Right. So uh, that's one thing. You will be making a trip to the instruction manual, just just to be clear on this. And television was a system that you had to read the instructions, because if you didn't, you no, won't, you no idea what you're you, doing. you won't make it past the selection Incredibly screen. Incredibly difficult like, to control and to understand what you're supposed to be doing. Do I press three here? How, what? I don't <laughs> am know. Am I what dialing game? a family member? What am I doing with this controller? <laughs> so that's one of the nice things. And let me tell you, I spend more time on my Nintendo DS version of Intellivision Lives playing sports titles. The three, wow. the three games that I like the most are in the sports. I, I thought games. you were all always like, don't throw sports at me. <laughs> no, that's not me. Oh, okay. uh, that was Got somebody else. It might have been, yeah, I don't know, stinky. Or oh, wait, that's me. I'm sorry. Ah, let me tell you about three of the titles that I play for this. First of all, I love the version of bowling for the Intellivision. Which is a lot like league bowling for the Neo Geo, correct? I'll tell you what, as a predecessor to it, yeah. it's probably the closest that you can get in the this factors there. In this uh, time of development, right. you see so much. There's so much going on. The screen is split up in such a way that you can see a, a head-on view of the lane. You can mm-hmm. see a side view of your robot bowler. Oh, um, robots, that, I'm in. That's that's nice. one of the things. You know, um, Rock'em, sock'em, bowling? <laughs> You know the little running man that's the Intellivision logo? Yes. Yeah, that's not just a logo. That's the the robot that's going to be in every game that you play. Right. So you get the side view of that guy down below. Or a girl if you're very creative. I don't know. You know, it's a robot. Uh, Then you get your score. Like, you can see Mm -hmm. three frames of your score, like, sort of in the middle, separating different bits of the screen. It's really this amazing interface that they develop for a simple bowling title. It's not just, you know, point an arrow left or right and then hit a button. Well, that was the thing about the Intellivision, right? Was that, you know... It was intelligent television. It's intelligent television, but it's also, it was head and shoulders above 
its uh, Atari counterpart. And that's really what the big pitch was with their advertising campaign, which was essentially an attack campaign that right. said, here, look at baseball on their system. Look at baseball on ours. Look at bowling on their system. Look at bowling on ours. And the Intellivision graphically was, again, head and shoulders above the Atari. The pixels were a lot smaller. Yeah, you could The pixels were smaller and the games were a little more complex and actually played like games. You know, when you compared a lot of the sports titles from the Intellivision to the Atari, Atari's games were barely a sports game. It was more like <laughs> move pixel A to point A and points will come on the screen. Right. Whereas with the Intellivision, at least there was uh, some attempt to make what they were trying to make a facsimile of, whether it be bowling or football or baseball, it kind of felt like you were playing a game that was similar or looked like bowling or baseball or football. Yeah, it wasn't Pong. It was not Pong. Right. Wasn't there an Atari basketball game where you moved the hoop? Or oh. One of the... Uh, maybe the second player move. I, I, I used to play basketball a lot. The problem with Atari basketball was that it was a two player game, and I never had a second player. So, <laughs> so like, I did a lot as a kid, too. It's okay. Yeah. I would be the blue player once, and then I'd, I'd uh, steal the ball. And like, Who's going to win? And I'd be. Oh, you didn't try to control the other controller with your foot or something? Well, I did a little bit of that, you know, both yeah. handed and stuff, and yeah. ah, stuff that shot. You know, but, uh, but uh, again, yeah, getting off topic. Uh, the bowling is just, it's just amazing. It's, it's it's very complex, and now you can see in the intro. Okay, which numbers correlate to what ball size I want to do? The weight, which mm-hmm. uh, numbers correlate to left-handed or right-handed? So everything works perfectly with that. The second game I enjoy to play, and speaking of precursors to eight-bit titles, a, a precursor to RC Pro-Am, which who didn't like that? Stadium Mud Buggies. <laughs> Stadium Mud Buggies. One of my favorites. Let me just tell you about it. Oh, wait, no, that was Micro Machines. I'm sorry. (laughs) Number of players, one. Okay, enter. Um, Yeah, we want to do that. We want to do race against two players. Okay, and you can choose if you want to do like hill climbs. You can choose if you want to do like a drag race. So many different options in this game. And uh, let me just, I want to make sure that we have this sound here. If you get this for your kids, they're going to love the sound. You're going to you're going to want to punch your kids. <laughs> here we go. Up oh, that's reverse. Now the interesting thing about this is that it's actually Oh, I can hear the acceleration. Yep. There now, you go. Oh, I got an accident. The the very interest talking about making games deeper. It's actually a four-speed off-road truck. It's a uh, three-quarter overhead. And you you press oh, down. Oh, skidding. Yep, I hit I hit some divots. I mean, I guess it's a good to point out that that was another thing that Intellivision kind of had over Atari, a little bit better sound processing. Yeah, listen to that. The drone. That is rad right there. <laughs> that is music to my ears. That and the, the Castlevania soundtrack, uh, Symphony of Night. Those are the two things I love to listen to. What gear am I in? But no, it actually has four speeds. And what you do is you you let up and let go of the B button uh, on, on well on on your Nintendo DS to make to go through gears. And I'm popping wheelies and everything. The blue car is just floating through the air. There's hill. You know what's climbs. interesting though? What's if you were to play that that noise yeah. to anybody and just be like what is this they're gonna what, what are they gonna say 
It's a video game. Oh, all, okay. all kidding aside, they're yeah. going to say it's a video game. Yeah. Because these little bleeps and bloops today, you still hear them in television and movies when somebody's playing a video game. Right. It's so ingrained in our culture that these little like beep, 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 beep things are video games, even though we're long, long past that now. But there's, there's some sort of... Um, stamp into our epistemology of video games that we recognize these noises as video games as do these little blocky pixels and you're seeing this sort of dialing back with a lot of the independent titles and the smaller titles coming out with dlc and things like this that they're going back to that era you know it looks like bit trip beat perfect example of this it has a lot of those influences of an atari or a television obviously there's a lot more color and there's a lot more happening than that but the inspiration is there because now that people can make smaller games they can do things that are creative and go back to what games were because i think deep down inside we all agree that's when games were games you know they weren't just movies you watched and hit x at a particular point that was video games or at least in the most distilled purest form and i think it's very interesting that it it is coming full circle we're not going to go back to this outdated technology but we are going back to the way it sounded the way it looked the way it felt the essence of these uh pre-8-bit games and one thing that you neglected to mention is when you do hear those sounds, of course, the people that are sitting on the sofa with two different types of controllers are waving <laughs> them around wildly like maniacs. Yes. Uh, that's the only way to, to really know someone's playing a video game. <laughs> one of the games I wasn't going to bring up, but because you brought up uh, the differences between the 2600 and Intellivision, boxing. Everyone remembers the boxing for Intellivision. It was side view. And you had, I, this is why I always thought it was a robot, because in no game other than boxing, do they look more like Rock'em Sock'em robots? And that's yes. what I thought they were. And you did a review of Rock'em Sock'em for the, the handheld. And I, think, <laughs> I think the Intellivision boxing might be a little bit better. But, I mean, you can... You're re- welcome. Yeah. You can really, you know, knock people out. It was really cool. If you remember the Activision, which they always made fantastic games, but their version of boxing for the 2600 was this overhead thing... Yeah, it looks so weird. Your, your characters look like you're looking down on a black and white squiggly bracket, you know, like the brace uh, character on your <laughs> yeah, on your typewriter. Everyone has an electronic typewriter, I guess. But that's what they looked like. And, I mean, I used to love to play that because you could get in this rhythm where the guy's face was just going under your glove back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and, and knock the guy out. But, I mean, these really looked like people. And, and when I go back now and play the Intellivision version, I can see they're not Rock'em Sock'em robots. They're, there's actually some really neat animation going on sure but the the game that i think that everyone needs to play and i never hear it talked about is body snafu yeah well no we talked about snafu okay and we talked about snafu and it's a great title i just like saying snafu who doesn't think about the time this was released and what that acronym (laughs) stands for the time snafu was released yeah yeah so that's that's kind of uh, interesting there it's like releasing a game called wtf back then Right. So, no, Body Slam Super Pro Wrestling. I've never heard anyone talk about this game. It was 1988, and television brought out Body Slam Super Pro Wrestling. Now, this game, you could either do tag team or uh, one-on-one. 
Wow, <laughs> options. Yep. <laughs> I, I know it's a big deal. I'm not, I'm it is. not kidding. You ain't kidding. You can yeah. choose whether your skill level you could go. Back then, you were lucky that you didn't just start in a grapple when you turned the game on. Exactly. And, Press up now. Whoa. And what were you grappling? Like two <laughs> pixels, you know, yeah. pumping each other? Uh, beginner and amateur, rookie, veteran, professional, super pro. So I, of course, do beginner. Then you choose your wrestler. There are how many wrestlers? Ten, I think. You have uh, Barf the Caveman. Really? Vic Vicious. Jack oh, okay. Hammer. Uh-huh. Judge Injury. <laughs> you, have, you have Rambo. You have Rambo. You have Gorgeous Gordon. Mm-hmm. Chief Big Thunder. Okay. Baron Von Thud. Yes. Oh. Sheik of Slam. Okay. Dr. Payne. I don't know who that is. No. And Beach Bum Barney. Yeah, Beach Bum Barney. And oh, it's, I guess was Hulk Hogan. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. The, the, the funniest thing about this, though, is imagine the Intellivision lives uh, running man, okay? <laughs> and then, so how do you make that look like different wrestlers? Well, of course, you make his body oh. purple or blue. <laughs> but there's some guys, they, they have uh, beards. Uh, Beach Bombarni does have, he's green. It's funny, uh-huh. he's green and he has the yellow hair and the yellow mustache. Yep. Uh-huh. Um, bar for the now, cave. Can I ask you a quick question? Yeah. When you're selecting them, it's just text on a screen or do you see like any sort of. No, you see they're little dudes and okay. and they are so funny because it's like the Intellivision Running Man, but he's standing face you so he, he's in a very odd position you've, you've got to uh, either play this or at least watch a video of this because it is incredibly comical so after you pick your your character you pick what moves you want to do okay from a list do you pick these moves or well this is how you pick your move you, nope. you'll have one through nine moves depending on what okay. game you're playing and what happens is you see a list of moves: uh, body slam, pile driver, possum roll, headbutt, rope sling, rainbow. On the overlay. Rainbow. No, um, no, on the screen. Oh, okay. You're cycling through a list of moves: rainbow punch, suplex, flip kick, spin. Wait, rainbow punch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> spin okay. heave. Spin heave, which is like a giant spin swing. Heave. Backbreaker. So is, that, is that like a drunkard's move or something? It is. Flying sit drop, mega leap. A giant splash. Now, some of these only Did they work. Know they didn't have to pay royalties on wrestling moves. Or? Uh, you know, you know those are those are under copyright. Oh, are they? Or trademark, rather. Yep, yep, they are. Giant splash, clothesline. Now, some of these only work like off a top rope dive and stuff like this. So it's kind of and yes, you can go up to the top rope on this. Wow. Power kick, elbow drop, bazooka punch, which is one of my favorites. <laughs> Duck and cover, brain buster. Oh, that one that I said was a roll, possum roll. That's actually yeah. just to roll out of the way of somebody jumping on you. Mm. A cross chop, quick jab, drop kick, iron claw, chest smash, face masher, knee butt, body slam. I think I started over, right? Pile driver. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Is the iron claw the legitimate iron claw? Yes. So what you do yeah, is when you when you scroll through these, then you pick on your number pad, either one through four or one through nine, where you want that move to go. So I'm just going to go through here. Uh, I'm going to make one possum roll, two headbutt, three suplex, and four the spin heave, since that seems to be a favorite of uh, of everyone here. Sure. <laughs> 
and then you get in the ring. Now, when you do the spin heave, which is the giant swing, you actually toss your opponent out of the ring, and they go flying out of the ring, and then you can battle outside the ring. It's a 20 count outside the ring. You can get counted out. You have five seconds to be on the top rope before you're counted out. You, you can pin them for a three count. And everybody has a power meter down below. Mm. And when you when you lock up with someone, you have to press your corresponding button for whatever move you want to do. Uh, some moves like the bazooka punch you could do without locking up. Your uh, characters even say things in little word bubbles like grr and, <laughs> uh, and ouch. The other incredibly hilarious thing is the fact that the, in between each round, there's a transvestite in a bikini. Because it's the same in television band, Indian <laughs> is what you're saying. No, they, they, it's this incredibly uh, stretched out Barbie transvestite that winks at you with her man cheeks. Nice. So, so th- this has rounds, then. So it's a uh, it's more of a simulation of the British World of Sports style of pro wrestling. Then. I've never gotten to the second round, but <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, it might have. Yeah, it, that might be how it goes. But I've I've always either won or lost, and you can roll in and out of the ring. I mean, it's truly That's pretty complex. It's incredibly complex. You could run. You could do your moves. You can do the flying. I'm willing to Eva. bet twenty dollars. It's better than Raw on Xbox. <laughs> I would rather play this. And just purely as a comedic value, it's it's off the charts. It's one of the funniest wrestling games that I've I've ever watched or played. So pick that up in Television Lives. Nintendo DS, I highly recommend this title. I'd highly recommend any arcade title at the time between the two competitors, as far as Burger Time, Donkey Kong, Donkey Kong Jr., any of the titles that they ported from the arcade to home mm-hmm. in television's version is just it looks better did it not look closer to the arcade and i know that was another selling point they mm-hmm. did but it did it, it really did bring the arcade home uh until the coleco vision i would gr- agree yes with you. One yeah the coleco vision definitely had a leg up on uh in television once it came out but so at the time it was very impressive yeah yeah uh, I hope to delve into a little bit more of that. We're, we're going to have Keith uh, back on the show and probably in a, in a breakout bonus level. A round two, if you will? Definitely, because there's so much to talk about with this guy. He's one of those very interesting fellas that's been around since the beginning and uh, and in the business since the beginning. So it, it definitely warrants some extrapolation. on. Th- we I, didn't, I even forgot to mention bring up the fact that the thing I talk about, every time I bring up the Intellivision, what yeah. do I say? That it was a 16-bit system. Right. You know, way before What's crazy about that time was that there was, it seemed like that was really like the fertile crescent of uh, video games as we know them today, because there was, there was so much imagination that at least it appears as a spectator looking in that they thought they could do anything. Like we're going to put a computer attachment and we're going to have this thing dial in online, essentially, mm-hmm. or we're going to have a voice synthesizer for it can talk. And th- like just these ideas from Mattel with the Intellivision, from Atari, the ColecoVision, there was all these ideas and they, they really believed that they could do anything with these consoles that were uh, really archaic. <laughs> Even I mean, the Atari itself was, was the hardware programming on this as we've gone over with past guests was uh, a tedious and very uh, brutal task but they really believed that their consoles could just do anything anything they thought of they thought it was possible because nobody was doing what they were doing so you saw a lot of cool stuff yeah oh, or at least cool attempts to do cool things I right. should say yeah well it's got a, it's got a southern drawl on it that's amazing yeah. Excellent. 
And Keith's right. You can't play that game without that overlay because you, you just can't run your bombing missions. You can't do anything. So um, you, you definitely need that keypad. The Intellivision was uh, pretty popular around where I lived. I, I tried to mention to Keith that um, my my girlfriend had the the cassette deck that went on with it, the printer, the uh, keyboard, and I know a lot of these keyboards weren't released because they were quite defective, right? A little too ambitious, but uh, we we didn't really get into all that debacle. But very popular in television around my area was really did sell on that intelligent television. I don't know how uh, how much of the market it penetrated outside of my area. <laughs> I would have to say that the Atari was predominant around uh, my neighborhood as a kid growing up. Is that, you know, people had your Atari 2600 or your 5200. That was pretty standard for the time until, you know, Nintendo came out and steamrolled everybody. I think I knew a couple people who had like a ColecoVision. But just doing research in, in uh, what the contemporaries at the time were, I was shocked to find out that, that Sega was actually in that mix. They actually released the console in uh, 1983 in Japan, and it was a uh, it was a contemporary with Atari, Coleco, and Intellivision. I had no idea that this system even existed. The SG-1. The Sega SG-1000. 1000, that's it. They like putting uh, arbitrary numbers on the back of things back <laughs> yeah. then. Yeah. You know? Right. The uh, the thing about that system that used cards didn't it? like the. I've never seen one in person, but I'm just going off of things that I've researched. They looked a lot like the uh, Sega Master System, the Me cards. We yeah, the Hue card right. looking Me card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember like those cards um, being around back in the day. Not necessarily the SG one thousand ones, the uh, but cards being like. They weren't as popular, obviously, as uh, cartridges ended up being. And my friend had a Master System one, and uh, I remember we were just fascinated by the idea that you know you could stick a card in the system and there be a game on there. Mm-hmm. Right, my hero and uh, Ghost something I can't recall. <laughs> Transbot that was another one that was on card. Yeah, I figured it'd be like the, the video game equivalent of making a phone call on Blade Runner. You know, <laughs> 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 you know what I thought speaking of like ga- like game systems at the time where you looked at it and you're just like this is the future mm. was definitely the one kid I know <laughs> I don't know him anymore but back then who had a Vectrix when I saw that thing I was just like it's like a little arcade machine on his table yeah. and look at it. it look how good this looks not realizing that you know it could only do vector graphics and if he was to tinker around with it at all he could probably kill himself because of the uh, like the <laughs> voltage that you could yeah. zap yourself with in the back right it, w- it was like horribly unsafe this system uh, mine's still going quite well but oh yeah, no but I heard it, if you open up the back of that thing you're you're looking for trouble yeah because it's just like opening up a, a television at that time you could right. that's that's a big transformer on the back there now the uh, the uh, the joystick was was like a big selling point for me because it really sold the fact that this was like a little tabletop arcade mm-hmm. that looked better than the li- remember those little handhelds that were put out the li- I think ColecoVision put them out the little arcade tabletops mm-hmm. that were essentially just L- LCD games sure like yep. shining through so I had a couple of those yeah, growing were, up, but when I saw this light up in all of its uh, you know vector graphics mm-hmm. glory it blew my mind and I'm just like this is an arcade system at home this is the way that it's going to be in the future we're all going to have a little arcade machine that we're going to shove cartridges in well speaking and, of the future there was there was a light pen adapter for it so you can yeah, yeah. touch the screen and there was also 3D goggles 
Here's right. the thing, right? Yeah. When I saw that game system first, I saw it in like 1993 or something. Oh, okay. The Mega Drive was already out, okay? And I still, when I saw it, I went, is this new? (laughs) (laughs) It's like, this is going to replace everything. Another system that relied heavily on those overlays. (laughs) That's true. I mean, those sharp graphics, you know, I mean, like, they're just still very appealing, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you can do anything with vectors because uh, you can you can uh, program it up because it's very small bandwidth because it's just uh, points, and then the system draws in the lines between the points. So it's on the data end, it's very small in kilobits. So right. you can make pretty complex games. The program takes a long time, which is also why the light pen worked is because you were just putting points on the the screen exactly right? yep. yeah and that's why i could do those 3d games like star trek and star war type of Ama- games they were absolutely amazing i mean a uh, few times i've seen yours i've envied it so much i don't know if you've known this wiggly but every time no. i've looked at your vectrix i envy you. mine's a little busted up it, it needs some work, i don't care but, <laughs> yeah that's that, I, I used to have two vectrix systems at one time i had to sell my my better one but i stopped myself many times on ebay from buying one yeah, you know, you never know what you're going to get too. That's another exactly. thing. They, they, you know, there's some that like just two hundred bucks still. It's crazy. It's crazy. What they need to do, right, is they need to bring out a Tron Legacy game on the Intel, on the Vectrex because mm-hmm. it would look amazing. You know, with the black playing, and white. Yeah, you know? Sure. That's what that film kind of reminded me of. Like you know, all mm-hmm. the the kind of black and white and just all the lines everywhere. Right. Pardon me. They actually had pretty complex games too, like soccer games, so and football games, American football games. So you know that system had a lot of different types of titles for it. I think there were a little over. Uh, I can't recall. I think there were somewhere around around sixty to one hundred games. I, I don't recall the exact number, but really cool, really great system. Still one of my favorites. And you're right that that joystick that it comes with is a little joystick. It's uh, it's self centering. And you have four buttons. So, how advanced is that as far as um, what you're able to do in arcade? You could you could do hyperspace, uh, right. you know, with your asteroid style game uh, that kind of came with it. And people still creating games for that system. Did they bring any, any Neo Geo ports for it? You know, with the four buttons. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Magician Lord on the Vectrix. <laughs> uh, I guess I guess you could play um, Viewpoint. That would have translated well. See, I didn't know that, that there's an active homebrew community for that, huh? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. That's that's impressive. Yeah, I, I think there's one about umbrellas. Uh, I, I Right now, yeah, you caught me off guard with that, but... Oh, that's I, all right. I I just, I'm, I'm impressed, because yep. it doesn't seem like it'd be an easy system to design and program for. There was an unreleased game called Mailplane for us. Uh, oh, yeah. It never came out. I think yeah. the guy uh, who was programming it years ago was released as a homebrew project now. So, I know we've touched on it, but uh, how about the ColecoVision? Uh, I just, I love that system. I like everything I, about it. I, I had the, I have the steering wheel for it. I have uh, the rollerball, everything. So. It essentially took everything that was working well for the Intellivision and made it a little bit better. Tweaked it. Tweaked it, made the controller better, kept the keypad, enhanced the graphics, and really, again, it was head and shoulders above Atari, but I guess because there was so much saturation of, as we're talking about, so many other consoles, so many different games, so many games, Chuck the Wagon, that um, 
all these things led to the uh, inevitable crash of the second generation. Yeah, it, w- it was just getting, like you said, too saturated, and the ColecoVision, unfortunately, just came in a little bit too late. But now, the ColecoVision doesn't get as much play, because back then, it did excel at bringing the arcade home. Right. So there weren't as many original titles uh, that were exclusive to that system. I believe Donkey Kong was a pack-in for that system. Yep, yeah, that's right. And it was a fantastic version. I mean, you wouldn't see... Well, some of the games for Intellivision, some of the games for the ColecoVision are better than the 8-bit Nintendo versions, I think. Yeah, I agree with and that. And I'm not the only one sure. that thinks that. <laughs> no, I agree. No, I agree. Yeah. So, And then, of uh, course, we, we had one of your favorites, uh, and I touched on a little bit, was the uh, Fairchild <laughs> Channel <laughs> Oh, Which yeah. I guess was the first to kick off the second generation, and you've talked about it at length. Yeah, but I just I, I don't want it to be forgotten. No, so let's forget about it. Yes, yeah, so let's let us forget. Got to catch all those games, though. You know, got to <laughs> grab them all. We also touched on uh, the Arcadia. Did you have the pleasure of playing that Wiggly? That uh, I think I have an Arcadia, but I no, I, I don't. I, right now, I can't recall if I have an Arcadia. I know it took me a long time to get an RCA Studio 2. That took me a long time, and that turned out to be uh, a Pong-style gaming system. Right. And it took me a long time to get a, a Fairchild Channel F. So I don't think I have an Arcadia yet. Uh, one of the things that I did get more recently that was kind of hard to come by was a Coleco Telstar Arcade. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen this thing. It's a triangle. Yeah, we were, it's a pyramid, yes. pyramid triangle here, and on the one side you have Pong, and two people could play that. Another uh, side of the triangle you have the uh, Quick Draw, so you have your light gun, and then the other side you have the Road Road Race. It's a steering wheel with a sh- two gear shifts, and the right. cartridges, if you want to call them that, the the uh, I guess they're just potentiometers in there with different uh, types of relays. I don't think there's really any logic going on in here is triangular as well like a like a crazy type of pyramid and you you slam that in the top of your system the cartridge that i have with it comes with uh, road race tennis and quick draw so of course pong uh, some type of uh, racing game and uh, the and a, a, zap, a light gun type of uh, skeet game yeah the uh, go was big with the peripherals too i mean they they had a they had a couple steering wheels they also have yeah. that super controller. Oh, like the this. sports controller. The, the, I Which love I'm still that. waiting for somebody to make a homebrew guitar hero with that, because that essentially has the same color button scheme as one of those plastic ukuleles that they, you, know, you play guitar hero with. <laughs> I, I really want to talk to uh, Keith more about that controller in particular, because uh, it got a lot of flack. It, what it was was this like sword hilt that you would hold. Yeah. It had it had like a shield around the, the front of it, and it had four buttons. Uh, I think four buttons that were colored, and right. four colored buttons, and then the joystick on top, and then a a thumb wheel that you could move left or right. During their football games, you had receivers that correlated to those colors on your triggers there. So if you wanted to throw to the to, to your red receiver, you hit the red button, the yellow receiver, like that. and then Which was easy to see because it had this big plastic module over your hand. <laughs> so you'd have to turn it in such a way no, to look no. at those colors. No, it's, it's just like you get used to where the X and the triangle yeah, and you you know, everything else is. And the other added feature of this is when, when you threw a pass, then you'd slide that knob, uh, either with your right or your left hand, it didn't matter, or your thumb. And then that would 
be how far the pass would go. So it's a right. very, very complex uh, sports controller, but really cool and really added to the gameplay. And much like the Nintendo Power Glove, great for punching your friend in the arm wolf. <laughs> oh, man, you could do some damage with that. So wh- what was going on in, uh, in Ireland at that time? Well, uh, what was weird about the 8-bit early systems, as far as I can tell, because I was not born, uh, you know, much uh, around the time a lot of these came out. I see. As far as I can tell, um, different territories in Europe, different systems got popular. I know for a fact that uh, Atari brought the 2600 into Ireland relatively late, kind of like in the 1980s, probably... I think they opened a factory here in 1984, 1985, and started releasing the systems then. Hmm. By that time... Ireland's two big exports, Atari (laughs) Games and the DeLorean. (laughs) Well, uh, there was actually... What's cool is there's um, a variant system out there that they were calling the Darth Vader that's literally just an all-black plastic and silver uh, Atari 2600 that I think was only produced in Ireland. So, I mean, it's it's kind of a neat little... um, collector's item if you can get it and uh but the thing is the 8-bit microcomputers kind of took off as well stuff from commodore and then there was like the right. spectrum and the amstrad in england and but what was weird was like uh different computers in japan and america and elsewhere would kind of become real popular in countries that you wouldn't necessarily think like the msx got huge in holland as far as i know hmm. <laughs> and uh so like it was Japan and Holland were the two big territories for that system, like you know. And then like uh, I can't remember which one it was, but the the monochrome system, I think that's probably the Amstrad. I'm sure there are you know mid thirties British guys screaming at me now if they're listening. <laughs> uh, but uh, that got really popular in Spain and in the Soviet Union. Hmm. So um, somebody was making like a. Adaptations of the name of the roles and stuff like that, and made them into like adventure games. They like that. Unfortunately, don't have English translations and stuff. But I mean, those systems carried on being popular right up until now, to the point where somebody recently ported uh, Mortal Kombat onto the Amstrad wow. and um, different stuff like that. But uh, you know, it's that that was kind of what was interesting here, and I think it was Sega kind of broke the mold going into the 16-bit era and stuff like that, people were still clinging to their 8-bit micros. and The Mega Drive kind of turned the tide as far as getting people to, you know, buy into console games. So for me, I mean, the arcades had obviously become popular, but the home systems that were popular at that time were uh, 8-bit micros, and people were buying into the Atari ST and the Amiga and all, obviously, as well. But uh, that was what kind of changed change people's buying habits like just for everybody i mean obviously consoles are a lot more accessible i mean to go back to the television it seemed to me and while they didn't have a lot of uh interaction with television it seemed to me like that it was almost that controller seemed like a translation well not translation but a, a midpoint between a joystick and a keyboard and uh, mm-hmm. I, i'd imagine if they, it had a came in and kind of made it play for the English and Spanish markets and stuff like that, it might have succeeded because people were so used to playing uh, like Spectrum and Amstrad games and stuff, you know, on their 8-bit micros and their rubber keyboards and all that. Right, right. Did the Texas Instrument make any impact uh, outside of the United States or how about even for you, Kyle? Do you remember the TI? 
I don't know if it was a TI-90 or what Texas... I, I had a TI computer. I don't remember what the, the number call was, but I, I had one. I guess it was an 8-bit computer. I vaguely remember it. I remember playing, I, I think it was called, uh, and this could be wrong, Cliffhanger or something, where you were climbing a mountain and you had to dodge buzzards and boulders as they, you know, would try to attack you. I think I remember maybe some sort of medieval game, too. I had something like that. It took cartridges and you played it on the keyboard. You know, that, that's pretty much what it was. It was a keyboard that you plugged into a TV, uh, much like uh, Commodore 64 at the time, where it, it was a self-contained keyboard that you could plug into your television. Right, right. That was a TV I don't, computer. I was say, I don't remember the Centrum and stuff at all. I mean, not to say that it wasn't here, though. There was definitely two different camps happening at the time where there was a lot of people who were jumping on board with the home console movement. And then there was other people at the time, which, I mean, you saw at the crash of the second generation, were going for the computer end. And, you know, the big sell was computers are educational, video games are dead. Uh, Even Atari was going for the computer market for for a time because, uh, you know, there was all this thought that maybe this was just a fad, it was just a hula hoop or bubble gum or something like this. We've seen that split go from there where computer gaming and console gaming were very much two different entities and they didn't really come back together until recently where you do have people playing console games and uh, computer games and they're the same title like um, A Call of Duty or Mass Effect. You know, but at yeah. the time, there is a whole other movement happening, which we rarely touch on. I think we touched on a little bit with the uh, Fothergill brothers, which was, and especially in the European market, there was this huge movement of personal computer gaming that uh, North America never experienced. You know, with your Sinclairs and your Amstrads and your Jet Set Willys. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird uh, to me, anyway. When I was growing up, it seemed like. There was like almost a, a class division when it came to some types of games because, like PC games, poor people like myself couldn't afford computers at the time. You know, it was kind of ghetto, I guess, to be playing your, uh, you know, your console games all the time as well. Like, I don't know, it was a weird split. Sure. I mean, you saw that here in the 80s with uh, when Nintendo really made a vibe for the American market. That came out, was hugely successful, and then all of a sudden you saw uh, Atari 2600s popping up on shelves at severely reduced rates just to get rid of that back stock. And I mean, essentially, that's how I got mine was, uh, I think, I was playing an Atari 2600 into the, into the 90s. I think 91, 92 uh, is when I got my Nintendo. And then you start shouting at it. And then I started throwing <laughs> controllers and uh, getting angry and becoming a... Uh, <laughs> we should have never got Kyle at Nintendo. Yeah. <laughs> He's he such was, an angry boy. <laughs> he, he was so content with Journey, they escaped. <laughs> <laughs> hey, speaking about Snafu about 30 minutes ago... Uh, <laughs> Music in video games. Yes, the start of it. We talked about why that game was able to have music. Uh, What what type of music sprung out of there that you might want to talk us about? Well, it's funny. You know, favorite music uh, of that era, of the second generation gaming era, we've already talked about, too, for the Intellivision. Snafu, fantastic music. 
one of those tunes that is very simple and it repeats and loops, but um, very catchy. And the tempo would change uh, as the difficulty increased. And it was and sort then, of surprising because it doesn't happen until you're down to the last two snakes. Correct. Yeah, so I think that's what the shocker is. Right. And then the other one would be uh, Thundercastle, which is very mm. impressive, the music in that game, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it's like the music in that game would be the equivalent of uh, a second generation of gaming Castlevania or Dragon Warrior for the next generation to come because the music was actually like immersive. Yeah, yeah. Very uh, symphonic. I don't even know if that's the correct term. <laughs> I guess but in chip very tune, impressive. Chiptune symphonic. Well, it's funny you bring up chiptunes because two former guests of We Talk Games, uh, 8-Bit Weapon, mm-hmm. one of yeah. the things that they like to perform <laughs> with in their show is an Intellivision. They actually create music on stage using an Intellivision. And the other interesting thing is if you go to Intellivision Lives, you'll see some CDs from 8-Bit Weapon on there. What? As well as some things from our other buddy that did the I Am 8-Bit, some of his artwork. So it has a whole We Talk Games tie, and it's We just need to get our t-shirts family. in that site store, <laughs> and then boom, cross-merchandising. It can we happen. Talk it might happen. Let's make it happen. Hey, speaking of Thundercastle, you'll be happy to know that Thundercastle is pretty much available for any device that has some type of Intellivision feature to get games. Like, it's on the iPad version of Intellivision. It's on all the Intellivision lives. And if you don't know what it is, it's sort of like a Dungeons & Dragons, but only on one screen. I, I guess it's more akin to, like, Wizard of War. But the maze keeps changing and evolving, and vines close, and you can't go that way. And you're hunting the dragon. You're trying not, trying not to get killed by the dragon. And like you said, it has a, sort of a Castlevania feel if Castlevania was a maze game. Right. You know, I'm saying the music itself. Oh, yeah, I know that. It was a lot of sound effects at the beginning and kind of atmospherics and stuff. Which, when people use it right, uh, as in the game that I bring up every now and then, but, I mean, Yard's Revenge, I think the, the sound effects in that are fantastic and really mm-hmm. kind of Evoke an atmosphere, and uh, but, and the Dungeons and Dragons, as we mentioned too, when you got close yeah. to the, the Dragon's Lair, it made that that growling type of noise. Which today you would think uh, is there interference with my antenna? Yeah, uh, but because <laughs> that's what kids say all the time. But uh, you know, at that time, it was a lot of tension. And I've got to tell you, anything has got to be better than the music that the new Jenga HD has for the iPad. If you played this. Yeah, you and have the music turned on. You will want to uh, drill your earballs out with a, some type of a large scale power chisel drill. All right. Well, you hear that music? You know what that means? I'm not sure. Actually, it means I want to go blow my brains out. Okay. Oh. Hey, everybody! Great counsel. That's the Jenga music. I'll, uh, oh, okay. I'll t- <laughs> talk to you next time when we talk games. Bye. Free pills Bye. and lotion. Hey, that's it. Hey, thank you, everyone, for helping to make We Talk Games possible. Special thanks to our guest, Keith Robinson. And television does live. And I simply could not do this show without the help of Kyle Von Kubik and Johnny Capcom and Stinky and TT and maybe somebody else. I don't know. But I surely know that we cannot do it without you, the listener, the most... Hold on. What's that, Keith? Kyle's back on... Well... All right, put them through. What's up? I'm dressed like a cereal box. Well, what do you think? I like games. All right, you're great cereal.